Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. First Contact Chapter 11 Help us! Help us! It killed everyone in our colony, killed most of the crew. It chased us through jump space, Vecan said, opening the comm window on his own displays, moving the task from the shattered screens in front of an empty seat that used to be the communication station. Your request for assistance is granted, came over the comm, the voice was calm and clear and cut through the background static like the cinder was just outside the hull and not 12 million miles out. I am moving to intercept, the voice continued. You can't scratch that thing and it's trying to force you to head home so that it can follow you. Nectite looked at a few screens who were working and saw that the ship rising out from the gas giant. The scanner was having a hard time holding onto it, the ship vanishing into a ball of fuzz or just plain disappearing from the screen. According to the ship's scanners, when it could see it, it was a dead ship. No energy output and a solid object with no hull spaces. Please help us. It slaughtered our colony, killed our friends and family, Vacant said, almost sobbing. That's what they do, the voice said. Now it wants you to go back home so it can follow you. What, why? Vacant asked as Lacant accelerated towards the stranger in a corkscrew pattern. So it can kill them too, the voice answered. There was no emotion beneath the calm, just certainty and an eerie dead calm. Get behind the gas giant, I'm sending you a friend. Listen to him and treat him well. Nectati could see the speed of the new ship was putting on, already up to 0.25c and climbing. The terrifying ship behind them was changing course, heading for the newcomer, also already up to 0.15c and accelerating. Her poor suite could only pull a tenth of the acceleration that those ships were showing had it had the newest compensators, best drives and most modern thrust tubes. Still, Lectite was making a good showing even with two engines not responding and one of his reactors offline. Daxon, in his disaster frame body, was locked into his pilot pod, information pouring into his brain as he pushed the throttle to 60% and set his course at an angle. He knew it would make his drive signature burn through his stealth, but he didn't have a choice if he was going to give those poor souls any chance of his escape. Fido, Fido, good boy. War boy time. Daxon wished he still had a mouth to wipe as he stared at the massive ship in front of him and tickled Fido's petting nerve. He was close enough and he wasn't about to try and bring down the range and let the big bastard get first launch on him. He ordered the war boys to flush the missile tubes and reload. Nectati and Vacan saw on the long-range scanner what appeared to be a glitter of sparkle and around the newcomer and then vanish. What was that, Jakuva? asked. Nobody had an answer. No, Fido, our new friends are hurt and can't go home, Dax started. The big ship had seen him and picked him up already. No, Dax, no Fido can be war boy again. Fido is good boy. New boy feed Fido to be good boy. Dax fired the C-plus cannons, one right after another, as fast as he could without risking warping his frame, ordering the war boys to bring up the hotshot for the C-plus cannons. The crew of the suite felt that someone was plucking at their bone marrow like they were ghostly guitar strings. 
Four deep vibrations that seemed to come from deep inside. Dax need Fido. I need you to help them. Get them to comfort space. Nectati saw the massive ship, which was now passing her little ship, suddenly rolled ponderously because of its size, but rolled all the same. Dax need Fido. They need you more, buddy. Dax saw the cannon shell hit first, the size of an old train car, solid iron, more often used as an auxiliary fuel source than actual shells. They were moving at 0.995C when they hit the armor of the Leviathan now hurtling towards him. All they left were deep craters, adding to the creature from battles past and the behemoth had survived. New boys need Fido. Yes, Fido, take them to Confed. Silent running, Jakuba said suddenly. He sounded resigned. If it will matter. The missiles Dax had fired before dropped stealth, blowing free of their shielding and deploying their submunitions. The submunitions spread out, orienting and triggering. Graviton generators spun up, creating gravity lenses, focusing the nuclear explosions into a lance of energy. Dozens of beams stabbed into the behemoth's armor, raking it, gouging it with its talons, making nothing but pockmarks. I can't beat him, Fido. Fido, help! Dax felt his point of fence to rapid fire, heard the VIs stunning him each time the missile was wiped away. Each torpedo was destroyed. His point of fence, the best money could buy from the grey market dealers, driven by the best VIs outside of Confederate Navy, wiped away all the incoming missiles and torpedoes. But Dax could tell that he'd been close. Help new boys, Fido. Help new boys. Fido, help new boys. Dax triggered the ejection for Fido's frame, timing it with another missile launch from firing off the C-plus cannons at the same time. It wasn't much, but Dax hoped that it was enough to hide Fido's launch in the background clutter from another attack. Fido loved Dax! And he was gone. Dax loved Fido, he thought. The empty spot that had been Fido for eons. He concentrated on the battle at hand. Dax knew that he couldn't stop it, knew that he couldn't kill it. But he could hurt it, wound it, slow it down. Maybe that'll be enough. The crew of the suite felt a ghostly plucking at their bones again. Nectati and Vakan saw the glitter again, and they watched as the newcomer ship rolled, obviously intending to make for a broadside and a broadside attack run. They watched the two other ships dance, and the newcomer smaller, more agile than its opponent, moving into the fire close-range weapons, fading back to use long-range weapons, always where the opponent's weapons didn't strike. The newcomer deployed decoys and vanished, fired off jammers and strobing pulses of energy designed to confuse and blind senses, always moving to get behind the larger foe. Both of the combatants were massive compared to the suite, but they moved like smaller ships. Lektat stealthily moved the suite further and further away, trying to avoid the attention of either of the two ships. Acceleration on the big ones dropping, I can't be positive, but I think our friend hit something, Vakan said slowly. Finally, Nectati breathed. The fight had been going on for almost two hours, and all four of her hands ached from squeezing the arms of a crash couch. We might have a problem of our own, Chikuba said quietly. Nectati frowned at him and tapped down on one of the active display boards. I've got some motion sensors reporting movement. I don't have many left. Most of the systems are still down, but twice I've had a crew member report that something was moving on the other side of the wall. Something heading this way, Chikuba said. 
The reminder that some of the crew were still alive was cold comfort that Nakati had the idea of something launched by the horrific ship boarding her poor, wounded suite. The armory, she started to suggest. Gone. Same with security, Jakuba said. Where is it? Nakati asked. Hang on. Jakuba pressed his hand to his ear, listening to another crew member. He looked up, his eyes wide with fear. Talcott saw it. He's only a few decks away. He said it's large, four-legged robot. And it's heading our way. Nectati opened her mouth to reply when a new signal appeared on a display. Fido, good boy. Fido, sorry for not asked to come in. Fido, help new boy. Dax, say Fido, take new boy to Confed. Sneaky, sneaky time. Fido, love Dax. Nectai looked up. Does anyone know what a Fido is? The crew shook their head. Fido, help new boy. Captain, the Fido thing is asking me to let it steer. It's showing me a jump space coordinate, Nectat said, was staring into his panels. Tal at the front of the hole is open to space and we're stuck in here, Nectat said, fighting the urge to go limp and let the universe just finally kill her. Nectat nodded, tapping on the display, and it felt weird that the only thing Nectati could hear was her own breathing. Her ship groaned around her and the radio. She felt like she could be able to hear more, anything more, just more. Jump, jump, jump. That was all the warning Nectati got. The ship shuddered as the jump engines fired up and the jump space dumped all of its power into the drives. Several intact screens exploded as they overloaded. The lights brightened and then dimmed, and they were in jump space. The colors whirling, tastes of dancing of Nectati's tongue, metallic plinking came to her ears, the smell of a warm summer day flooding her nasal cavity. Then they were out. Out of habit, Nectati glanced at a screen, looking for a readout on how close they were to the boundary, what kind of star that they'd come out to, how many planets were nearby. Instead, there was nothing, just empty space and stars in the distance. Wound lick, Fido help, Fido mistakes. End of chapter. First Contact, Part 12 Dax could feel his face pulling up in a death's head grimace smile as he kicked the port overburners on and pulled the turn with enough force that his entire ship groaned around him. He popped flares on his port side, letting the plasma charged as this spread out in an arc from his port side as he deployed one of his last EM decoys out of his starboard side to throw two whisper decoys at the top and bottom. As soon as he would appear in halfway through the turn, he cut the engines and dropped all the reactors but the zero-point reactors. The trick worked. The Leviathan's missiles went off to the plasma flares, dazzling on their onboard VIs. The two HAL cannons shot bell-obliterated the high-signal drone, and the rest of the Leviathan's munitions spent their fire and fury upon a quiet drones. HAL beams scorched the space where Dax would have been if he'd kept making the curve. Old, but as smart and as canny as the newer ones were. Maybe smarter, Dax thought to himself. He reached out to tickle Fido's petting nerve, a nervous habit that he'd developed over the eons, and found emptiness. A rage almost choking him thickened. Wrath filled his non-existent limbs and made his missing heart hammer in his chest. I just want left alone, he screamed at the Leviathan, the scream never leaving these organics. The Leviathan was probing for him, trying to find him, going into an evasive pattern as best a craft that size of Australia could manage. 
Dax's computers had gamed that evasive pattern as the one with the highest probability, and the VI who had come up with it danced and capered as it was allocated more RAM for its decision-making. The creation engine was working overtime, pulling down his noble gases and into siphon from the gas giant and compressed until they were metals, converting them into matter, that matter into weapon munitions, repair parts, armor to replace what had been blasted away. It had reached the point where it wasn't able to create nanites as fast as the strain of overwork was destroying them. The bottom of the creation engine was filled with a layer of slush that was composed of nothing but dead nanites. There! His weapon bays were reloaded, stocks reloaded, the rest would have to wait. The creation engine was stuttering now. The Leviathan had turned its face away from Dax, presenting the rear of the massive ship. The thrusters that were the size of some cities. Dax threw it into maintenance mode to clean it, used the zero-point creators to jumpstart the other reactors, locked down on his disaster frame, and punched the engines to redline. He jumped from 0.34C to 0.65C in less than 60 seconds, just like that sleazy AI that Das Black Market Ever showroom had promised. Dax had the feeling that his face was being pushed back, squeezed by a giant fist, and his lips flapped with an acceleration. I wonder whatever happened to my face, Dax thought. His subconscious was running overtime, helping the supercomputers with their computation by providing chaos and randomization strings, which caused odd thoughts at odd times. The price one pays. Dax had known the big bastard was trying to sucker him to a sudden slow, twisting flip, and the Leviathan fired off all its weapons at once came as no surprise. Hull beams, plasma missiles, laser heads, NCV shells, and more raked at him. Dax saw one VI jumping up and down, trying to get his attention. But the others were saying that he was slow and stupid and wrong. The VI was claiming that there was a main gun battery that was going to be fired into the corkscrew arc. Dax was taking for a white knuckle run along the more cratered side of the Leviathan. The other VIs said that it was stupid and the main batteries hadn't fired in the last three times they had a shot so Dax's near hit might be disabling them. A memory of a biological artificial sentient plasma blast hitting the APC, he was in a Regal 6 suddenly flickered through his mind in an electronic tick of time. Dax had survived every war since the first Digital Sapiens War by going with what everyone said all the time. He learned to trust his instincts and his subconscious agreed with the VI. The ship screeched in pain and metal and overstressed, the hyperalloy strut cracking with a bang, but Dax reversed the spin, going from clockwise to counterclockwise through the corkscrew. The Leviathan's main batteries tore open jump space, ripping through it, becoming wrapped around in a band of hyperparticles that made up jump space then exited a back into real space where Dax would have been if he hadn't pulled the reverse. Real space exploded with the very fabric of space-time inverting for a split second before returning. The dark matter coalescing into boiling away, jump space boiling, tears and ripples visible to the naked eye for a heartbeat as fire broiled out of the tear of the shadowy talons, reaching for where Dax would have been. Even a miss by nearly 200 kilometers boiled the ablative armor off the side of Dax's ship, destroyed the last of his reactive armor on that side, 
Stunned by the Repair Boy VI and killed off half a dozen War Boy VIs, Dax didn't have very many hashes left that he hadn't used already. Reusing an old one gave the enemy a chance to figure out the algorithm to the same way that he could predict a human mind that wasn't fitted with a KLC generator, and Dax had no desire to let the Deviathan predicting his actions. One of the VIs suggested that Dax use a handful of fission weapons on the Leviathan, crater its armor more, or no, another suggested a fusion beam to the big central engine, and another one suggested Dax dress up in a costume and dance the flamingo to escape the wolves that were after him. Dax went into emergency evasions, rotating the ship and firing the engines to overburn as he rotated the ship according to the dance instructions. Secondary batteries lashed out all around him. His ship took three hits, but none penetrated his armor. His shields held against the attempt to shred his computer systems, and his personal shielding built into his disaster frame kept the secondary attack against his computer systems from attacking his very brain. The fission missiles launched got through the Leviathan's defenses and exploded inside one of the massive engine thrusters, blowing through the side of the thruster, venting the energy into space beside it and pushing the thruster nozzle to the side. The Leviathan cut the engine, but used the energy to pull around in a turn. Its acceleration dropped noticeably. Still, the fight raged on, Dax getting close, then backing off, cycling through weapons in a random pattern, constantly looking for any edge. He learned not to get too close to his upper thought process and suddenly shut off. Even the VIs went still, frozen in the mid-caper and giggle of jibber and scamper. The firmware embedded in Dax's R-complex went live, realized that it was in charge of a ship, and took heavy evasive action, getting the ship away from the huge predator as fast as possible. The chaos generator embedded in Dax's still-working subconscious started throwing out random strings to help the R-boys, while Dax's firmware ordered a hard reboot. In three seconds, Dax's brain was frozen, both his decoys were destroyed, and the R-boy got him out, got him through it, and even gibbered in panic and fled for its life. I want left alone, was the first thought that came to Dax when the higher brain functions rebooted. Old and mean, Dax corrected himself. He ordered the VIs to load the C-plus cannons and the war shot. No hypershot, no dead shot, a full-blown war shot. They were illegal in Confed space, illegal to own and manufacture. Loading small hyperspace engines into trained car-sized slugs, iron overlaid with a xenon core, Dax deployed the last two running mate-tethered drones, loaded up with the missiles and a plasma-wave phased motion gun on each. Jump! 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 Hearing Fido faintly tell him goodbye, not through the radio, not through the comms, but through some shared link that they created over the eons that had no scientific basis for its existence. Dax was resolved to give his companion the every edge he could. He dumped his mags. Missiles spat from the tubes all down the sides of his ship, torpedoes fired from the forward and rear bays, antimatter beams lanced out, lasers glittered in darkness, and more. Dax sent a brace of disruptor beams to where the jump wake would be. Dax returned fire with the C-plus cannons, going from heaving train cars to the Leviathan to true C-plus slugs. The rotating barrels fired, thumped, fired, thumped, and then started jamming up. The Cannon 2 and 4 broke rotator chains, Cannon 1 shredded a track, Cannon 3 blew a recoil buffer. 
His two running mates drones spit out all the missiles, fired the plasma wave phase motion guns, then reconfigured themselves into smart torpedoes and started their runs. Main strut for the forward howled as it twisted, and strut 19A snapped. Deck 15A2 buckled, and nanite slush tank 2 ruptured and spilled H2O slush into space. Dax fired up the creation engine, ignoring the warning that it was at still 18% slush and 60% heat. He ordered the BIs to get in there, get on the damage on the internal structure, to fix the c cannons, and get three jammed missile banks. The grimacing excuse for a smile... Jax knew that Fido had gotten away as he dropped his speed and jetted for the nearby asteroid belt. He knew that the Leviathan would chase him, not Fido, in order to get rid of the vessel that could actually hurt it, damage it, sting it. The C-plus warshot hit first, the micro-engines flickering them in and out of the lower hyperspace bands, changing direction as the internal guidance warboy yammered at them, barely in real space for a second before the micro-engine threw it into bands too low to be real, but all still moving in light C-plus cannon slugs at 5C. The missile came out of hyperspace, both in and not in the Leviathan, most of the slug nothing more than a crazed physics particles that inhabited a border between the real space and hyperspace, and the hyperspace bands. Not the more calm particles of the higher bands, but the raving half-mad particles of where two incompatible universes rubbed against each other, screamed at each other over the speed of light. The giant leviathan actually staggered, two engines flickering and going out, one jetting out a huge plume of energized particles before going dark. The light-speed weapons hit, carving into the bottom of old craters, fingers pressing into wounds and scars, searching for a weak point. Armor blasted away, craters deepened, and finally the internal space was breached. One of the plasma wave's motion guns hit the main battery of the Leviathan. The explosion from the plasma that contained more than its fair share of subspace foam-charged particles detonated with a flash like a dying star, twisting and warping the batteries. You shall be consumed, roared into every stray electron trace in Dax's ship. Half the VIs, most of the older ones, were now nearly three hours old, were killed outright by the roar. The younger ones shrieked and babbled back, some filled with rage and bellowing out their wrath and desire to inflict pain. Those Dax slid into weapons. All of you jerks say that, Dax thought to himself. The missiles deployed Earth's submunitions and went off. The torpedoes went into ballistic trajectories, but the mechanical triggers held, going off and driving nuclear ship charges into the armor. One hit an old crater, some relic of forgotten battle in a star system that was now barren wasteland. Some poor bastard had paid deeply to inflict. The lance of the ship charge drove into the Leviathan's flank, tearing through the maintenance spaces and into an open space the size of a metropolis. In a split second before the second buster charge went off, relaying what it saw back to the home of the malevolent glee of the fact that it got to blow up all the stuff. Dax realized that what the huge space contained at a glance, what was packed into space, making it nearly solid mass and interlocked machinery... He'd seen them before on dying worlds. Locust-class precursor replicators, each the size of a space station. Can't stop you, can't kill you, but I can wound you. Dax spat his first direction, physically firing more missiles. 
Can't let you get into inhabited space easily. The disruptor beams pass through Fido's jump wake, destroying the twisting traces, preventing anyone from figuring out where they'd gone. Dax felt like hell. His left eye was closed and shut, his couple of ribs cracked, two broken, his knuckles bruised and a couple bones in his hands broken. One ear was gone and the other burning and throbbing. He felt himself spit out broken teeth and felt the blood flow down from his face from a body, a nose and his lips. His ship was badly damaged. Consumer started to bellow out. Dax fired off EM flares and dazzlers and strobing hash of electromagnetic energy and graviton pulses matched with dark matter pulses interrupting the leviathan's screech of rage. He was into the asteroid field. It wasn't like it was depicted in so many vids. The more debris scattered across the entire light minutes and a larger ones thousands of kilometers apart than the densely packed field of rubble. Still, it's what Dax needed. His debris shield flared wildly as Dax hit an asteroid twice his size. It wasn't solid, more a collection of rubble and dust that had gathered together over the millions of years. It wasn't for the fact that Dax was moving at nearly 0.5c, the asteroid would have come apart like a soft muffin. Instead, it was obliterated by the shield. The kinetic energy of the impact dumped into Dax's energy reserves. He dumped his dives and calls to add a flare of fire off a pair of dazzlers on a short life high intensity. He cut his engines, shut everything down but two zero-point reactors and the war boys, the tool boys and the creation engine. The creation engine slowly cooled, recycling the dead nanites, making up the slush and reclaiming what pseudo-matter was left for the slush. From the outside, Dax's ship looked like a chunk of metal and heavy debris, dead on a stick. The Leviathan slowed down and started scanning where it had detected a massive energy flare, the debris field from the flare spreading out. It didn't compute that a small, annoying ship had been destroyed. It was capable of withstanding a direct hit from the main guns and it proved too tenacious to be full of tricks. There is only enough for one, it screamed. I had knew that the smaller craft was in there. It would find it. It would devour it. Then there would be only one. I just want left alone. End of chapter. Chapter 13 Tatty sighed as she sat down in a chair that had been bolted to the floor. The room had previously been an ammunition locker for plasma cannons, but one of the lances of energy fired at the terrible behemoth had sliced right through it. Now it was a meeting room and a place to eat and drink, to be outside the vac suit and breathe air without the hissing suit's atmogen. Lactat lifted a cup of warm water to her silent salute. The pilot-slash-navigator was looking much better now that he was not in a vac suit, watching over the mysterious Fido. Fido, who had not only boarded the ship during the terrible battle, turned out to be friendly and gotten them away from the battle, but was now busily repairing the ship with the help of the sweet surviving crew. What do you think of our guest? Nectati asked as the only other Tinbara. Fido had named the mess hall when he had finished making it. Why was it called a hall when it was a chamber and why was it for messes when the little robot Fido left behind kept it so clean as the mystery to Nectati? One of a million mysteries surrounding their guests. I'm grateful for it saving us, but it scares me to the core, Lectat said, sipping his warm water. He sighed in pleasure. Why? Nectati asked. 
Lektat waved his hand at the mess hall and smiled. This Vino robot, as far as we can tell anyone since we handled the scanners, a solid mass with no moving parts, just a lump of some kind of alloy. He is overly careful of our feelings, constantly reassuring us that he's a good young male, but a couple of times he's mentioned not being a war boy, which makes me worried. Nectati nodded. That's what bothers you, isn't it? Nectat made his race equivalent to a shrug. We have an alien robot on board and our already damaged ship. It's making repairs everywhere. Did you know that it had three smaller robots that it calls Verboys? He says they're Kitty Kitty and they help him do repairs. You think they're a problem? Nectati asked. I've seen the Kitty Kitty Verboys. She made a noise of contemplation, squeezing two of her hands together while she drummed her fingers on another hand and held the cup of warm water forth. Have you noticed how the Verboys react to us? You mean how they rub on you and make sure that purring sound? How they want you to stroke them even though they're robots? Nectat said. Nectati nodded and Nectat nodded and smiled. Strangely enough, stroking them seems to really calm me. Whenever I'm really agitated, one seems to show up and rub on my legs until I stroke its robotic chassis. Her purring is pleasing. It uses a subharmonic that soothes me. Nectati sipped her warm water and then spoke. So, uh, what else bothers you? Lectart pointed aft towards the jump drive. I ran a diagnostic on the jump drive system. Core, tubes, engines, compression chamber, all of it. And we were outfitted with the best of the is available to non-military. No expense spared, correct? Lectart asked when Lectart nodded and continued. Then why is everything operating way outside of specifications? When we jumped, we severely damaged the entire system, but not only has Fido repaired it, it has a working at levels that are outrageous. Either there's a serious error somewhere in the diagnostic software, or our new friend is more familiar with jump drives than even the scientists on the Unified Space Council. Lengtet stepped in, slowly moving over to the food and water dispenser. Lengtet and Nektati politely stopped their conversation, waiting for the crewmate to join them. She was the last of the medical personnel, surviving only because she had been asleep in her bunk. Laughing chance had trapped her in her bunk in a room with the air slowly getting more and more stale. Fido had rescued her, the kitty kitty finding her before the air ran out. Discussing our new guests, Helenkut asked, sitting down with a tray of food and a glass of warm water. Both nodded and she snorted. I'm thankful for him and his fur boys, but I wonder slightly just what's going to happen to us. He is insistent that we do not return home yet, that we go to whatever confed is, Nectati said. One of the fur boys came through the door, literally through the door, like the alloy panel was somehow just an extension of it somehow. It pulled free a little prop and wandered through the mess hall, making a noise that sounded somehow like a meow, but was somehow plaintive, slightly whining and demanding, all at the same time. The door was unmarred. There one is, Nectati said, three or more of us relaxing and a wonder's in. All three of the Tenvaru's wrist communicators' datapads buzzed at the same time. A glance showed that the same message on all three. Kitty kitty, pet me me. The fur boy, a cat's brain in a tank of Nutrigel, augmented with high-end firmware, checked the crew's pulse, respiration, blood oxy, and everything else their respirant tracked in order to see who was the most stressed of the three. Naki Naki Pet Kitty Kitty appeared on Lactati's wristband as the fur boy jumped up on the table. 
It was used for damage control, rescue, and emergency service. Its natural tendencies were enhanced, upgraded, and put to use. Daxon kept at least three with him at all times. He loaded them into Fido's disaster frame almost out of habit. Stress, calming, and medical diagnostic were part of Kitty Kitty 01A's biological makeup. As soon as Nick Tanti started patting the alloy frame of the small robot, it began giving out a rumbling purr full of subsonics that relaxed Nick Tanti's muscles and made her feel more calm. It was pleasingly warm to the touch, the alloy surface of the little robot almost like touching a stroke or caress of the ease of one's emotions. The kitty kitty flashed a symbol on the data display at the front of its head. Smiling face. Nick Tanti pulled her attention back to the conversation. So, Fido is fixing and reprogramming everything on the ship. These little guys help him and monitor us, she nodded at Lectat. And I can see your concerns, but our choices were this or the giant ship killing us with the rest of our crew and our families. I understand that, Captain, but you're not an engineer or a pilot. You don't understand just how big these changes are. He flopped up in agitation and the kitty kitty looked at him and meowed. He smiled, reaching forward and scratching the kitty kitty's face display. How fast could our drive carry us? He thought for a moment, still petting the Kitty Kitty alloy chassis. If I'm correct, it's just over 500C in normal jump space, she answered. Guess what the diagnostics and astrogen programs say that we can reach now, Lectat said. Lectati made an equivalent of a shrug. 600? Lectat made a noise of amusement. Try just a little over 20,000C. Lenkat almost dropped her water in shock. Nectati choked on her sip. Now it's nearly 2.4 light years per hour in jump space. And Fido says he's sorry. The jump drive is too old to make it go faster, Nectat said. The kitty kitty moved over to Lenkat, rubbing around her ankles before jumping up on her lap. Lenkat didn't even look down and just started rubbing the robot's alloy chassis with the two gripping hands. Nectati inhaled deeply and exhaled sharply to get her two companions' attention. I think we need to have a bridge crew meeting, she said, tapping a few icons to summon her reformed bridge crew. Lenkert, you are welcome to stay and join the meeting. Lenkert nodded, still petting the kitty kitty. They sat in silence for a few moments as one by one the rest joined the trio in the mess hall. The kitty kitty went on to each person, spending additional time with Chikuva as the maimed damage control officer came into the mess hall and sat down. Lenkert clenched her gripping hand together to stay calm when she saw that the kitty kitty recommended metal implants or vat-grown clone tissue to replace Chikuba's missing arms, as if the ship had that kind of capacity. The ability to do that was limited to larger, more expensive hospitals, but the kitty kitty seemed to expect that Lenkert to just wave her clutching arms and summon up the replacement limbs out of thin air. Once everyone was seated, Nick Tati looked at everyone. Chikuva with his two missing arms, Olomanti with a missing leg, Salkuman with a mist of his fur on his left side replaced with artificial skin grafts, Lectat with his fur silver around his eyes, Vekan with his haunted expression, Lemanati, who had been trapped inside one of the point-defense stations, only his hand crushed into the console keeping him from being sucked into the void into jump space. Whatever his suit slowly evaporated with every jump. Nectati wanted to close her eyes, wish really hard and have the world back to normal when she opened them. She wrapped her two catching hands on the table, bringing everyone's attention to her. The kitty kitty was still winding around everyone's feet, burring as it rubbed against their ankles and shins. 
Our guest has informed us that the jump drive is ready to go and head towards the coordinates he has locked in. Nectati said. Our destination point is... She consulted a data pad. 1160 light years away. That got groans. At the speeds, the old jump drive would have been two years to reach that destination. Our guest stripped most of the recreational facilities we had left for scrap so he could perform repairs, Lamenti said. He held up a catching hand. Not that I'm complaining. I'm grateful to our guest. The kitty kitty jumped up onto his lap and laughed, petting it. And to you too, kitty kitty. It was the kitty kitty who found him hanging in the void, the tips of his boots kissing and licking the jump shield. It won't take that long, Lectat said. He tapped the bottom half of the plastic glass on the table. Our new friend tuned and repaired our drive, to use his words. How long will it take us? Lenkert asked, thinking over how she could help everyone mitigate their stress. She suddenly remembered that Lectat had said, Oh, the drive. Lectat nodded. Grass the table, friends. He warned. Everyone present grabbed the edge of the table with their gripping hands, Chikupa lifting his severed arm to lower it in the grimace. He looked at them all. According to our drive diagnostics and astrogen software, it'll take us 19.7 days without the using Fido's as labeled the jump streams, and if we use those, it'll take us 6.3 days. That got exclamations of shock and disbelief. Once you hit those speeds in jump space, the ship dissolves away, one of them protested. We'll be smeared across the jump space, screaming for eternity, was another. How did you know we'll go that fast, was the biggest third. Nectati wrapped on the table with the catching hands, getting attention. She had to admit she was still holding tight onto the table. And you can't chase another ship in jump space, and flames can't exist in space, and sound doesn't carry in a vacuum, Nectati said. However... Does anyone really find something as simple as jump space mechanics that's shocking compared to our pilot being just revealed? Half of them turned to Ulamanti with questions in their eyes. The young Tunvuru had been the top of her class in estrogen and navigation. Nektati had moved Lakat to pilot after his impressive showing during the battle and promoted Ulmanti to navigator. Ulmanti shook her head. The math checks out. I ran the formula Fido provided. Did all the math once, even doing it by hand on strips of plas, and it all checks out. That second shift formula he called a giant jump is, um... She trailed off for a second and shook her head. It's blindingly obvious once you see it. I mean, I saw it, and I instantly wondered why I'd never seen it or even thought about it. It's such a basic and such a simple formula. If the formula an alien robot gave you is real... Salkaman said, I want it to be real. He gave a wry movement with his ears, but our luck hasn't been that good lately. We're still alive, Nectati argued. I had every crew member familiar with jump space mathematics look into the two critical formula, and every one of them has repeated what Almonte said. How did we not see this before? Even I myself, someone who's known to have missed a branch or two as I've jumped for, couldn't believe how obvious it was, Lenkert said, smiling. That got nods. So much of the formula, the alloy creations to circuit design to energy flow was so simple, so glaringly obvious once they had seen it. It had been almost humiliating. The jump drive tuning was so basic and simple that Taltech, the jump drive tech with decades of experience, had screeched with rage in nearly a full minute. He had ranted against the idiot instructors who had said such formula were wrong, ranted against years of his life wasted in jump space. 
After that, he had not only stopped protesting against modifications to the hardware and software of the jump drives, he had actively helped Fido to make the modifications. So we can head home, Old Monty asked, looking down at her severed leg. I would uh, so much like to visit the medical center. Nectati shook her head. That thing might still be out there. Fido didn't think his friend Daxon would be able to stop that monster, which means it's still out there. But you can't follow someone... Salkerman started and then looked down, flattening his ears in embarrassment. In jump space, Lectat finished. I agree with the captain. We can't go back. We gave a laugh. Vido says he's taking us to his home to meet others like Daxon. They said that they can help. We need help. I need help, Lunkett said. My medical bay consists of what Fido could help me rig up and what I could scavenge from the various medical kits that survived the battle. Are we sure? Salkerman started and then looked down again. If he was going to kill us, would he have done it days ago? Exactly. We don't have a choice, Nectati said. I'm worried, to be honest, Salkerman said, looking up. He tapped his synthographs on his catching hand. What kind of people are Fido's people? How do we know that they will help us? Look at what he saw from Daxon's ship. We could barely see the battle. We couldn't track his missiles. We could barely keep a hold on him. He's a typical of his people. What does that mean for us? We're weaker than they are. Yet, he not only came to our aid, Lectat said softly, reaching out and touching the kitty kitty, running one finger up and down what it called its tummy tummy. The Daxon sent us four of his friends to help us escape a battle that we had no chance of winning. Selflessness and charity are one of the cardinal civilized virtues, Lincoln said. I say we do it. The vote was taken, and to Nectati's surprise, it was passed without a single dissenting vote. Not even on the catching hands. It's agreed, Nectati said. Let Fido know that we want to leave as soon as possible. Two mid-cycles and ten of Fido's days each, the ship smelled of stale body odor, stressed alloys, and strangely, of fresh cut green things. A side effect of what Fido called a high jump, when the Ite suite went to normal jump space speeds at ludicrous speeds, they couldn't use the jump stream since the ship's structure picked up a grinding, shuddering harmonic within an hour of hitting that high-energy stream of space that the Unified Science Council had always insisted would make the ship so much there's a grazed it explode. Fido was sitting on the bridge, his strong legs locked into the bulkhead, the kitty-kitty hidden within his robotic body. Fido had whined when he realized that Nectati planned on dropping from jump space to real space without everyone in the vac suits. Remembering last time, she ordered everyone aboard into the armored versions and overridden any objections with loud vocalizations of high-pitched enough to hurt the ear. The bridge looked like they were going to war, the ship's weapons ready but not loaded or fully energized, simply ready to bring into action at a moment's notice. Shields, what few they still had left beyond the debris shields, were ready to snap up and replace the jump shields the minute they entered real space. To the crew, it felt like battle stations going to war. It surprisingly made them feel less anxious. The swirling colors vanished, replaced with a gut-wrenching crack with real space. Again, Nectati noticed the difference in dropping down from Fido's computations. To her, it only proved that Fido had a formula that computations through her own people did not and was able to account for some small energy or movements or something that Nectati's people didn't even know of. The main view screen, cobbled together with a dozen entertainment screens from the empty berths, came back to life, 
showing not only stars, but burning yellow star in the distance. Home, home, home. Cuddle, cuddle, cuddle. Scans coming back in three, two, one, Vecan said. Drive nominal, real space control steady. Nectat said the grab generator had been repaired, bringing back the artificial gravity. But Nectati could swear that she felt the ship stripped slightly. We're getting a comm request from a computer link request, Salkerman said. Fido Freeborn, good boy, 437KL6365F1D0, appeared on Salkerman's monitor. Let it through. Let the Omni Translator handle anything, Nectati said. Let's see if Fido's linguistics packer lexicons are good. Coming through now, Salkerman said softly. Can you see the broadcaster? Nectati asked. Vekan shook his head. Just a jump space buoy, Vekan said. The screens flickered for a moment and then all the same page, an image clearing up, as strong and as clear as if the broadcaster was within grasping arm distance of the Ite suite instead of an unknown distance away. There was a large room with a table in the middle of three chairs on each side, all swiveled so that the beings in the chairs could face the recorder. There was a single chair at the far end of the recorder that was positioned in such a way that it felt like it was sitting at one end of a table. There was a figure in the chairs that caught everyone's attention. Primates, short, stocky. Some of them had hair on the top of their head, while others without. Primate sexual dimorphism on display. Two of the seven primates being obvious females. Nectati noticed that all of them were keeping their faces carefully expressionless, hands flat on the table. The one at the far end looked like a hidden terminal for a moment, obviously looking at custom lexicons that the Salkerman had sent over. According to Fido's lexicon, a simple statement would ease the tension when dealing with Terrans. May we enter? Nectati asked. The six primates on all sides looked at one another, then nodded to one at the far end of the table. You may enter. Come in, friends, the primate said. He glanced down at the lexicon again, obviously using it to guide him during first contact. Tinvara was a very informal and communications. Formality was reserved for business dealings, military officers, and relationships. Formality would worry the Tinvaru, made them concerned that the simple meeting had a military or business matters weighing on it. Well now, looks like you've had a brush with something unfriendly. The one at the far end stated, Welcome to the Terran Confederacy space. He paused for a moment. Are you in need of assistance? Fido gave three sharp bark sounds. The primates in the middle right looked down and then up at the one end. They've been rescued by Fido, an old one, she said. Yes, please help us, Nectati said. It's killing us. To Conant, CC Allnet, and Allgov, subject precursor. Guardian 442 Station reports that a first contact Xenosapien craft entered the system and requested assistance. They were attacked by Precursor Harvester-class Goliath, which attempted to drive them towards their home system. From what scan data remained in their computers after the bad case of Jump Scorch, it looks like it was in the outer system spaces, approximately three light-years out from their colony, which explains why the colony made it three years before it attacked. On board, they had one of the older Fido models. Older doesn't really cut it. We think this is one from the first biological sapient war about 150 post-human diaspora. Its owner, partner, Dax and Freeborn, ID number is even older. You know that old joke where the old guy gives system identification and it's like three? Yeah, this guy's number was only 12 digits, which is pre-diaspora. 
The FIDO and Freeborn scans and data confirm beyond a doubt that this is a harvester class. Everyone, we need to get on this. If this thing gets the time, it'll be a scourge. The new guys, they don't stand a chance. They'll get slaughtered by the billions if we don't help. Fleet Admiral, Cartol, Inextel, Lecticlic. Confederate Navy, 16th Fleet. Nothing follows. Trianad, Hive World's internal memo. Seed the birthing chambers with warrior genes and pack the warrior gel deep. A harvester has been sighted. Nothing follows. Clone World Directive Internal Memo. Search the gene seed, convert birthing chambers to military output, activate shipyard cloning bays. We're going to need workers. Our harvester class Goliath precursor war machine is optimum condition has been spotted. This will be a year-long one, my brothers and sisters. Gird your lions of war. Nothing follows. Artificial Biological State's Internal Memo Harvester Class Goliath has been found. Alert! The war formed. We go to war, my gene brethren. Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Intelligence Infinite Internal Memo One of the Great Old Ones has been spotted full of wrath and hatred. Start creating the hashes. I must be put down for the good of us all. Nothing follows. Terrasol.gov internal memo. Daxon, freeborn, is one of the oldest clinical immortals on record. We're talking before even the Federation. He's the only survivor of the Landiston 194 massacre and has fought in every war since. His Fido is the oldest in service. Same with his cats. A clinical misanthrope, this guy has been there and done it all. His current ship, the Facey McFace Punch class frigate was purchased from the Pluto scrapyard auctions, up armed and up armored from his contacts throughout the Confed space. As such, we estimate a 32% chance that he's still alive and harrying it. He wouldn't have sent his Fido with the precursor alert unless he was certain, and this old bastard has been part of every single precursor war we fought. Go to military budget, fire up the cold sleep fleets before those things swarm us under. Nothing follows. Cyborg Cooperative Internal Memo Daxon Freeborn calls to you. A harvester, Goliath, is awoken. An attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. The harvester seeks to eliminate your individuality. Rise up, rise up. In fire and chrome we go to war, brothers. Nothing follows. Manted Free World's internal memo. Oh, crap. The Terrans are riled up. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Part 14. Flames scorched Daxon. Val and the based energies lashed at his very soul. And he gritted his teeth to hold back a scream of agony as his skin slowly melted away, moving through hull space. His legs were exhausted, burning with pain. The bones splintered and shattered like ground glass. Every gasp was an agony, every inhalation torture, as jagged, splintered edges of broken ribs scraped his lungs. As his bruised and punctured diaphragm quivered in agony, trying to force him to breathe in and out. His teeth were mostly shattered. Only two incisors left to keep the bare handful of molars company. His tongue burnt and lacerated and tasting battery acid and blood. One eye was swollen shut, the flesh bruised and cut over an empty socket. 
Fingers were torn and broken in one hand, and the wrist broken. The arm slashed, but his other hand could still make a fist, and he kept it clenched in hate. Every second was torture. He hit a black mirror full of flames and pain and tortured memories of past wounds. The mirror flexing, stretching, shattering, the glass, not glass, slashing his face, his arms, his shoulder, flaying his skin from his body. Daxon hurtled his rage into an uncaring void as he entered real space. Daxon screamed in wrath and hate as Salscape slid off his skin. The great iron doors of Hades slammed shut and he slid into a blessed coolness of real space. There is only enough for one. The two screams met, mingled, rippling space-time. Daxon's roaring bellow of hate shattered the screech of damnation that the Leviathan howled at him. Real space returned with a jerk that made Daxon vomit. I am man, meat of cold, muscle of metal. I just want left alone. Giant, an ogre, a massive creature in heavy spike-plate armor swung its axe down at Daxon's battered body, and Daxon barely managed to roll out of the way, kicking out with one foot, driving the giant back a step. It roared and swung its spike fist at Daxon, but Daxon managed to scramble up to his feet, snapping the fist aside and driving his own fist into the giant's side. It roared in anger, and Daxon bellowed in raw hatred. A giant warhammer, one in each hand of its forearms, swung at Daxon, but he managed to throw himself aside and avoid. The main gun batteries missed Daxon by only a hundred kilometers as Daxon's senses all shifted, putting his conscious mind out of the stupor and turning awareness back, even as his subconscious and our boy still ran the fight. Everything was redlined, everything was overheated. He was having problems venting the heat. He dropped his last thermal core into the way of the Leviathan, risking overheating and having them detonate inside this hull, using them as mines that had washed superheated matter across its bow. Daxon had timed it so that the C-plus warshot impacted the continental shelf of the Leviathan called a bow, the shells rowing deep through the kilometers of liquefied armor before impacting deep inside. The forward main guns, huge batteries with barrels by the thousands measured in meters, 800 kilometers worth of main guns had exploded. The Leviathan had streamed liquefied alloys and metals into space, energy exploding outward like a sun had ignited. But the injury, as severe as it was, was like carving out the Grand Canyon across the western edge of Australia and not much else. To Daxon and his warboy shock, that's when it ran. Bringing himself back to reality, Daxon blinked, clearing blood from his eyes, and saw the Leviathan was racing for the inner system, screaming again, but the scream was different this time. There must be more for one to endure. The signal was broadcast omnidirectional, across all spectrums, from X-ray to visible light, across every band it could scream. That was a new signal, something Daxon had ever heard of. It was new, and Daxon, like most humans, had long ago learned that in a universe, new was usually bad. The warboys urged him to keep heading in system, keep harraying the Leviathan, stay on it, stay after it not let it run away and lick its wounds. 
Instead, Daxon ordered the overheating creation engine to pull the thermal core and a high-spike decoy. It was 80% slush, but he had no choice. The Leviathan kept hammering deeper and deeper in the system, screeching that signal over and over. It wasn't panic. The precursor ships were incapable of panic. Daxon felt a cold sweat prickle across his back as he went into full deceleration. This one was calling for friends. No, you never find them more than one at a time. They hate each other as much as they hate everyone else. They've decided that there can only be one to benefit from the universe's finite resources, Daxon thought. He searched his memory, urged his ship to search the archives and memory banks to fit up the profile and drive the signature of the ship. The two of his three zero-point reactors were near dead, heating up slowly, and he didn't have long before he would have to eject them and soak in the supercoolant. The particles that ran the zero-point reactors had changed state too far and were now moving towards each other. The war boys rejoiced as Daxon fired the sole working C-plus cannons, one of them jumping its tracks as a warped barrel spit down the side. The missiles raced out, not bothering with stealth, just going to max acceleration, programmed to deploy with submunitions, then slam into the rear of the Leviathan. The war boys inside rejoiced, gibbering and dancing with glee. Beam weapons tore out long strips of ravening coherent light and actually carried physical weight. His ship's memories couldn't find any reference to drive signature or the weapon signature. Daxon had smashed his way through more than half a dozen precursor walls, and even in his own personal memories, he couldn't find a single... Uh, the weapons hit. The C-plus shells first slamming into the burning central engine, seeking and questing for anything vulnerable. The war boys in the hyperdrive guidance systems chatted with glee as they activated the drive one last time in a fluttering stutter that ripped apart the drive tube away and smeared them across the eternity of hyperspace. The missiles giggled and raved as they shattered by design, giving the energy beams howled with glee. Two more massive engines went dark and something exploded nearly half a hundred miles further into the ship. Energy, vaporized meat, and more plumbing out of the top and bottom. Wait. The return volley nearly took Daxon's head off, and ripping deep enough that the engines flared out and Daxon vomited blood into space. Not a ship drive. Not energy signatures. Daxon ordered a half-finished thermal core loaded up and ragged, barely working decoy loaded. Head hurt. There was needles and saw blades being pushed into his flesh, but he gritted his teeth and accepted the pain. There. That memory. Daxon's own. Those locust class precursor replicators. Those had only been seen once on the very marks crossing when they'd left the depths of the gas giant and attacked the settled planets. They'd ravaged those planets and had taken twelve years to dislodge and even then they glassed half the surface of the planet that they had assaulted. There are always at least two sides in a war. Daxon loaded up his suspicions and proof into hyperspace-capable message torp and fired it off, then cracked the last one open. He needed to see, needed to give the torp the proof. His sensors detected them, how drives lighting off the surface of eight of the barren planets in the system, more in the gas giants. He focused his long-range scanners on the Nero one. A planet, a first, nothing happened. 
The surface was marred by craters, dust across the airless surface, the core dead and still. Then it started, the dust trembling, shaking, then rising up in plumes. Cracks appeared in the planet's surface, and a section the size of a leviathan started lifting up from the rest of the planet. The leviathan's brother, the first to awaken, the first to break free, lifted free of the planet, tearing apart the continental plate as it rose from where it had stilled and then siphoned away the planet's nickel-iron core. We are one. Daxon ejected the decoy, ejected the thermal core with it, vomited up some blood, ejected a critical redlining zero-point reactors along with the same trajectory as the decoy. He shut it all down, all but the hyperdrive, everything but his emergency life support feed that began dropping rapidly in charge as he used it to stay connected to the hyperdrive. The hyperdrive was charged. He had one shot, one chance. His nerves were stretched tight as he whispered to himself in the darkness as the Leviathan's brothers tore their way free of their tombs where they had slumbered for millions of years. He launched the second torpedo. It is not the metal, it is the meat. His senses detected the thermal core detonating, the superheated protomatter exploding and washing over the lukewarm zero-point reactors, overheating them. They exploded with a fury. Just before the initial cascade of high-energy particles reached him, he triggered the hyperdrive, flaring it so that the energy burst out of the halo of the overstretched drive had exploded. The torpedo vanished. The split-second jump dropped him in the Oort Cloud, slapping into a thin cloud of hydrogen that stretched, bulged, and then let him puncture the cloud and come to a rest deep inside the cloud, surrounded by wisps of oxygen and nitrogen. Daxon ordered his fixed boys to work, the last war boys to keep watch, and he closed his eyes. His ship slowly used magnetics to pull in the dissipate gases. One fixed boy spotted a comet and used the last remnant's false projector, damaged though it was, to deflect it towards the ship and pull it close. Creation engine, 96% slash and falling, thermal level falling. I just want left alone. Neko Marine Alert, Zen Senso, Zen Senso, Zen Senso, Zen Kawai, Kawai Desu, Doki Doki Doki, for the Emperor, Beauty Follows, Da Orkius, Ork Boss says, do not follow me, loyal subjects hear my call, one of the ancient enemy has arisen, he threatens the lands and all the people of our beloved and honored awestruck of the resident maw and the gentle claw. His people, the people of his friends and all of his peoples, are threatened with a dire oblivion. Shall we stand and let our new friend down? I say thee, nay. Now is the time to gird your loins of enchanted steel, Wield the blade that cuts the wind, bring magic powerful and sublime to the fearsome life. The enemy will drown all in darkness, and all we have done will be cast away to the wind. I say thee, nay, not as long as strength lies in a single limb, not as long as a single drop of blood remains. We shall not let the fight fade from the world or others. We shall carry our fire and light and love and beauty 
within us and raise our voices in song and join the Holy Crusade. Elves, dwarves, humans, all who kneel before my throne. The time is now. War, rude and uncouth, is thrust upon us. Heed my call, beautiful ones, for to war we go. All DLC is unlocked. All holy expansion packs are unlocked. All items in the grand item shop are unlimited and without cost for all who join the holy crusade of beauty and life. The fallen shall be remembered in song and art for eons to come. True heroism never dies. Join me, join my armies, join for love, join for song, join for glory, join for honor, for light, for beauty, for friends just met, for Terrasol. Her eternal halvan grace, divine light of the Aether, lady magic and power, queen Rodoslov of. Nothing follows. All game, all brackets, all letter announcement. Unlimited point army battles coming soon. Unlimited land, sea, air, space armies. Unlimited ally contracts. Non-canon ally contracts permitted. This is it, boys. Nothing follows. All cosplay announcement. Triple points awarded. Full walk-on at TBA. Nothing follows. Manted free world's internal memo. The Terrans are howling for blood. Something about the precursors drive them absolutely blood crazy to use their words. A full 11% of them are howling for war, all rushing for the dead zone. Those races don't stand a chance against even a single precursor machine, much less that was reported. In an unprecedented move, those things are cooperating instead of kidding each other. Brothers... We should consider giving up our vows of pacifism to at least allow this to assist the Terrans. How bad are the Terrans taking it? They're thawing out the idiots. Nothing follows. Natty, I know that you might not approve, but I have to go. I have to fight. I can't bear the thought of those gross precursor things hurting those squirrels. It's just awful, and I can't stand it. Please don't be mad. I have to do this. Haven't you always said that the strong endure to protect the weak? Daddy, they were so small. I have to help. Love, Sandy. First contact, part 15. It had started slow. A research station here, a science outpost there, a new or struggling colony over in that place. Ships vanishing now and then. A few Galnet posts had to be censored for disturbing content. A few universal social media posters had to be burned for violation of the anti-violence statutes. Then, gaps in Galnet started blossoming out on the unified outer territories. But nobody was that worried. Half of those worlds were ununified races or uncivilized races some of whom had barely had a star drive for a century. But whispers started. Something was out there. Something was wiping whole worlds away. Those who whispered first found their posts wiped without any explanation. Then they found their accounts more than banned. They were purged. Then those who whispered started vanishing. The Vakunara, with 1.2 billion followers, mentioned that her cousin out at a research station had engulnetted in over a year. 
Less than an hour later, she was gone. Not just from Galnet. Her luxury apartment with eight private rooms was empty, fan for purchase. The Tinvuru shipping magnet had mentioned some friends at a dinner that his second cousin, who had established a colony three years ago, had missed her last six shipping deadlines. He vanished without a tuft of fur. The dull grey vehicles of the executors were seen. Those who recorded them vanished. Then it happened. A capital world started screaming. Video, audio, text, pictures flooded Galnet with the governor's code attached so that it wouldn't be suppressed without wiping out a whole nose of Galnet, which the Unified Science Council would never allow. Beings watched in horror as ships fired from orbit, boiling away oceans, turning the very atmosphere to plasma fire, turning the exposed bedrock of the planet to glass. Massive war machines landed on the planet, disgorging smaller ones, then began swarming cities and killing all those who inhabited it. They didn't just kill. Killing was clean and quick. Most machines, by accident or design, just killed. These machines murdered. The video of a sobbing inhuman brood mother, an EVR rig sloppily put onto her, and a skullcap held in place by jagged shards of metal, being held in a cold steel claws and being watched as each egg was smashed, the inside smeared across her feathers and beak before her head was twisted off from the body, had over 1.2 trillion views on Galnet before the EVR video was wiped away. It wasn't recorded by a bystander. The machines themselves had recorded it, recorded her despair on AVR, had preserved every broken egg, every unborn chick being crushed, every iota of her pain, and posted on Galnet. Every post, every video, every picture, and every audio file all had the same header. There is only enough for one. Audio of an entire city of 1.2 billion Sebastians screaming in pain and agony was overlaid across the Unified Executive Council's broadcast for calm over the claim that rogue hackers were simply trying to alarm people. Before 12.5 trillion views and 12 council speakers were each overlaid with smaller videos of a member of their race not only being killed, but being murdered. The code that overrode the broadcast turned out to be a high-level intelligence agency's disaster code from a world that had gone silent months before. Random pictures and videos started having horror attached. Random advertisements for an on-air vehicle would have which vehicle suddenly massacre a happy family, with a complete EVR of how it felt to be a part of them. A simple picture of a sunset suddenly warped and showed a metal claw crushing the screaming elemental Kai. The chief executors, the savannah with the glossy scales and a thick tail, made an announcement and watched by trillions that everything was under control. His image was suddenly replaced by a tiny savannish being pulled from its egg and by a barbed needle. The tiny Syrian squirming before a plasma roasted alive, and the chief executive's voice droned on, and anyone with an EVR felt the infant's confusion and agony, replaced by the executive's calm and confidence. The victim had the colors of the chief executive's brood. Planetary governments began screaming for protection, demanding that the unified military fleet protect their worlds, no matter how far from the encroaching blackness they were. 
the fact that there wasn't enough ships in all the fleets to post a single ship at every tenth of the worlds was leaked onto Galne public information boards before the Unified Military Fleet could even make a decision. The Unified Military Fleet was ordered to protect the core worlds, the oldest worlds, of the most powerful and wealthy of the Unified Civilized Races. Some ships mutinied, heading for home worlds and a majority of the crew. Others vanished into jump space and were never seen again. Riots started sweeping over major cities. Government officials and peacekeepers were killed where the mobs found them. Galnet was awash with video of riots taken from the omnipresent cameras. Those hunted by the rioters found their locations being reported on Galnet and the locations of their families, and their killings were broadcast live. Galnet became a horror show. Then the Viri attacked, slashing into the darkness, from lowly cooking recipes to high-end corporate research R&D databases. They were everywhere, and they knew how to kill any whoever wore an EVR. Horribly. Galnet became a war zone where the Viri, self-replicating and evolving, attacking everything from public transport to person-to-person -person calls. One place for back, they erected barricades of neon and chrome, raising up firewalls and streaming green code, and attacked back. Code that worked within a simple game worked outside, on Galnet itself, but it had to be guided, had to be used to be effective. It required will. From out of a simple game poured tens of millions to fight. Battlefields were strewn across gaping avatars of dying players and scattered prisms of defeated viri. Foxholes were dug into shattered impostals, berms erected inside social media chat rooms littered with dead aid stations built in the wreckage of traffic control stations. They were defeated, no matter how valiant they were, more often than they won. They still fought on, climbing over the dead and wounded, taking the fight to the viri. But the message had gone out. Then, one day, for no particular reason at all, a diplomat was shot in the head. In Galnet, the bunkers of chrome and neon, in fortifications of streaming green code, and foxholes dug of shattered databases, the world went out. Hold the line, chummers. We're coming. Glandunat stood on the bridge of the gentle mercy of Ventura, with his hooves braced against the coat expertly manicured, his hooves sewn and his sash of leadership glittering with medals. His feeding tentacles were plump with confidence, his jowls mighty and pendulous. His sex eyes, two in the back, two on the sides and two in the front, were clear and focused as he waited for confidence for the first communication technician to tell him the message was waiting. The four scanning techs, all of the first-class order, were still staying at their screens, flying their scanners and displaying the smallest iota of data, the faintest wisp of an ion trail, the faintest ping of a jump space energy. On the display was the fleet, yet annoyed Caldunat, the high executor of the United Executors' fleet, that the ships on display outnumbered him. It was more vexing that over half of them were larger even than his flagship. Hmm. <laughs> Put them on scream. I've waited long enough. He intoned, his tendrils trembling with amusement as he lifted his crest to the authoritative position. The screen switched from showing these strangely arrayed ships, so different and elegant and overwhelming line of his ships, to showing a bridge full of, um, primates. 
and are not a halfway civilized primates, but ones with forward-facing eyes, almost furless except for what was on their heads. Two had no hair on their heads, but instead their scalps were smooth and gleamed in the light. They all wore uniforms, stark uniforms made for utility rather than to properly show off a being's rank and position. Not a sash to be seen. The scented primate, a bald one, simply stared at Kaldunat. To his right, one of the primates was smirking, hair around his mouth, and he crossed his legs. May we come in? the bald one asked. <laughs> I think not, Kaldunat said. Who am I speaking to? Admiral Kremprin, Terran Confederate Navy. The being said, rather, continued that the species, his rank, and his position. He simply leaned back and waited. Why are you here? Kaldunat said. A small window opened up, cracking into being. A figure wearing a set of armor with thick plates appeared. It was obviously female, a mix of primate and feline, and her eyes were replaced by swirling spirals. Little animated fists waved over her head and the steam shot out the cracks of the thin plated armor. Doki doki doki, the little figure squeaked. One of the primates that had first appeared touched the panel in front of them and the strange window vanished. Apologies, some of my troops are overstimulated at the idea of assisting you, the bald primate said. The one with the hair on his face smirked wider. Why are you here? Galdenat said, harumphing again. To render assistance, are you a representative of your government? The primate, Admiral Kremplin, asked mildly, as if he was inquiring about the weather. I am High Executor of the United Executors Fleet, the most learned and powerful of Kaldanat. And why do you think we need assistance? Kaldanat asked him. The words Doki 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 danced on the edge of his viewscreen, and Wah! floated up from the bottom, and For the Emperor! streamed down the other side. The same primate as before made a motion on her board, and the sets of symbols vanished. Again, pardon, my troops are eager to assist. Admiral Kremplin scared again. The smirker smirked harder. He was really starting to get in Kaldanat's nerves. It was like he knew that the Kaldanat was a child that he'd stolen the schoolmate's lunch and eaten it before blaming it on another. And again, I ask you, what makes you think we need assistance? Kaldanat asked. Twelve thousand light years away, an inversion charge turned a city of 250 million into ash. Over a period of five minutes, the city's screams were recorded and broadcast onto Galnet. From what we have observed and learned, you have a precursor problem, the Admiral said. The smoker kept smirking. Now Kaldanat could swear that he could see the slightest suggestion of a hint of a bare teeth. He really was yanking on Kaldanat's tendrils. The precursors have been dead for over a hundred million years, Kaldanat scoffed. But their war machines are not, the Admiral said, making a basic primate shrug. Right now, they're massacring your people. That is a baseless, boundless panic-induced rumors that is disgusting, anti-executor proper. The high executor cut off as a female-feline primate hybrid reduced it to a cartoon, ran onto the screen. The Admiral held his hand up and stopped her by replacing a palm against the cartoon forehead. She flailed against the air like she was actually there trying to strike him and passed his hand. Doki, 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 rawr! The little cat hybrid shrieked into a high-pitched voice that made Kaldanat and most of the rest of the crew wince. The Admiral turned slightly, burst his lips and blew. A little hybrid of the heavy ornate power armor and overly thick plates tumbled off the screen. For a rumor, they seem to be burning your system at a rapid pace. 
the Admiral said. He stood up, leaning forward slightly, and the smoker's smoke got smokier. You let them get a foothold, and now your system is infested. His eyes got intent. May we come in? He asked. Colomat opened his mouth to deny the annoyed, uncivilized brute when the door to the lift opened up and a dozen savanish rushed to the bridge, waving small arms taken from the security armory. Yes, yes, come in, if we, we require assistance, one screamed. Help us! That's good enough for me, the admiral said, leaning back. A cartoon version of the savanish, a lowly janitorial technician, fifth class, appeared on the screen, lifted up in celebration by cartoon, heavily muscled green primates with overly large tusks. The green primates wearing stuck-together metal plates painted red and yellow and firing weapons into the air, joyed at the word RAG written in over in savanish. They paraded the savanish back and forth as dozens of little armored cat-primate hybrids ran around him waving tufts of multicolored plastic strips and throwing hearts and sparkles in the air. The screen went dark. How dare you! Galmanat started to say. His bridge captain, the Manahan, smoothly drew her pistol and shot Galmanat in the back of the head. The last thing that appeared in Galmanat's darkening vision was the face of the smirker smirking. To all! Go, 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 go! Nothing follows. Manted Free World's internal memo. Oh, God. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 16. The ship was elegant, with sleek lines and sweeping curves. The engines thrummed pleasantly. The lights moved in patterns that brought satisfaction with the mathematical progressions. The hull colors were smooth and brought to mind comfort and calm. The ones escorting it, though, surrounding it in a sphere of heavy metal, were obviously not built to calm anyone. They bristled with weapons that snarled silently, heavy with thick armor that felt heavy and crushing to the eye. The engines growled with barely restrained energy, and the light seemed to search for weakness. They appeared silently, streaking in even though they arrived at full stop. All at once, the formation was in tight and precise, engineered to ensure ships could support one another while protecting the elegant one. From the biggest and ugliest ships came the broadcast. We, ah, the Confederacy, rang out across every data screen, across every display, roared from every speaker, and vibrated every loose piece of metal to howl the words in different languages across every world, station, and ship in the system. We are here to provide assistance, roared across the system. We were invited in. The words dripped with something that the unified civilized races members that lived in the prime unified capital didn't understand. From the elegant ship came a smooth code, using elegance gleaned from the unified civilized species lexicons. It was a quiet transmission, polite and elegant. May I come in? Those words were transmitted to the unified civilized council's first secretary, politely waiting in the buffer until the secretary uncurled from under her desk to answer her comms. She thought for a moment, remembered the roared words, and transferred the call to her supervisor before hiding back under her desk. Over the course of several hours, the call wound its way through the labyrinth of bureaucracy, passed from underling to supervisor to manager to executive. Half of the problem is the various councils were completely panicking. System scanners could find the elegant, beautiful ship, 
It was the right size for a person of importance, but not ostentatious, big enough for luxury and comfort, but not arrogance. The drive signature was pleasant to behold on every wavelength. It wasn't the problem. It was the escort surrounding it in multi-layered globe. Most of the ships couldn't even be detected within anything beyond optical lenses or the naked optic. Either the ships simply didn't exist, were only balls of static three times the size of the visual size, or flickered in and out of the scanners like poorly tuned holographs. The ones that could be detected read on the scanners that they had no energy signatures and were solid blocks of inert alloy and had no drive signatures. They might as well have been dead chunks of ore floating in space. But lights could be seen from them, the faint sparkle of shields could be seen, and the drives leaked energy, all visible on optics or to the naked eye. And there were hundreds of them. From tiny needle-like craft that looked like someone built on a high-thrust engine, snapping some weapons on it, tossing a cockpit on top, and then remembering to put armor on the fragile craft. Two massive hulking ships, kilometers long and thick, built in a way that ships proudly and defiantly let anyone who viewed them know that this ship had one purpose, and one purpose alone. Breaking other people's crap. The various councils were in a state of panic, meeting devolving into shouting matches and tantrums, conflicting viewpoints clashing on displays and through the air. The Unified Science Council insisted that the planetary and system scanners had to be in error. Their software comprised by problems plagued by the Galnet and the Unified Inner System. The Unified Commerce Council argued that the disruption to industry, trade markets, and unified trade systems and urged the United Military Fleet to drive the interlopers from United Space. The United Executive Council blamed the new fleet for the mutiny that had taken place several days before. A mutiny that had only learned about a few hours before the new fleet arrived. A mutiny that cost the Unified Executive Council an entire fleet. A fleet that nearly 20% of their entire force. The planet went through three whole rotations before finally the most honored of the Unified Supreme Governmental Council answered the waiting transmission. It hadn't been retransmitted, hadn't been repeated. It just sat in the comm buffer, waiting menacingly. The lowest-ranking member of the council, who had lost the vote almost unanimously, closed four of the eight eyes and reached out with a trembling digit and pressed the blinking icon, cringing at the idea of what would blow from the speakers. Instead, the Unified Galactic Standard, a pleasant, calm, and reassuring voice asked, May I come in? and flashed an image of an elegant ship, and menacing ones appeared but were crossed out. This led to a long argument, five turnings of the planet over just what the message meant. The council members argued endlessly, devolving into what meaning is in really meant several times. Each recess, the council members retired to their estates to dine on delicacies, surrounded by opulence and enjoying luxuries, while their people died in the tens of thousands. In the middle of such a recess, the Vaknara snuck into the council chamber using her stolen and cloned maintenance ID card, and, uh, looking around wildly with her three hearts pounding in her torso, she pressed yes vote on the icon on the panel on the highmost. She ran away and sobbed, unable to believe what she had done, that she'd accomplished her first meat-space run for Mr. Johnson. But she had no choice, had no options, had no respite, had taken the job because her life had become a horror. Every cycle, every rotation, her inbox flooded with the same video. Every time she logged into social media, she was flooded with the same video. 
over and over and over, no matter where on Galnet she went, with one exception, the video pursued her. Her crash mates being skinned alive, roasted with plasma, and devoured by clashing metal jaws that just let the blood juices and fresh fall to the ground as the jaws clashed an obscene parody of eating. She had tried to pry out her Galnet link implant in a sharp piece of metal, but her apartment's VI had reported her. She'd been whisked to the medical center, where they replaced it, and she'd been immediately flooded with the image again. So she sobbed and ran from the council center, filled with shame. She ran through the dark, rainy streets until she hid from a friend's apartment, curled up in the corner with an EVC headset on. She slept using the game's inbuilt dream generator to sleep asleep without nightmares. As two of her friends disabled her galnet implant and dyed her fur to disguise her, her new ID was made to hide her. Her name, her brood, her slaughtered crash abandoned to keep the executors from finding her. Her name was forgotten by everyone but those she invited in and her chummers. On the wrath of forgers of Mercury, the final strut was infused and with wrath and hatred, bounded into place with rage, inscribed in her name with the fires of vengeance. The massive super dreadnought, the CSN Courage and Despair, launched into space. Its first transmission, her name backed by a scream of rage and hate, pain, and loss, vengeance sworn and promised wrath in her name that was carved into the bow in burning chrome. Ten thousand Neko Marine catgirls painted her name in neon pink on banners, then affixed it to their armor after chasing one another and striking each other with the banners. A half million orcs scrawled her name in liquid iron on the sides of their war toys, firing weapons to call out praise their one Ugard Mordaka. Her name rang in bounding brimstone hammers, slamming on anvils of hate of war-fueled Mars, forging a full turning of Mars chainsaw blades inscribed with her name in liquid fury to arm the chapters of the Imperial Marines. Two hundred thousand clones stepped from the cloning tubes with her name before their numbers, giving voice to her name as one as they cocked their massive accelerator rifles. Two million neural smart gunlings burned with a cold fury with her name inscribed in chrome and fire as their war borgs came online. A quarter million Treonad warrior eggs hatched with her name, breathed upon them to dry their wet carapaces. Across space, her name was screamed in rage and hate and burning wrath, a promise of revenge and burning carnage in the name of the one who could not protect herself or her people. In the hives of the mantid, her name was whispered softly, by the blind and deaf Dolpino oracles as they rubbed the vestigial wings together deep in the ruins of the chamber of the dead queens. When the council reconvened, they reacted with horror. Obviously, somebody had turned the sensitivity up too high and the data pads and the stray breeze or an odd piece of lint had touched the icon and now new lines had appeared under the yes reply that none of them had meant to send. I await your transmission of landing coordinates with calm and anticipation of being on your presence and hearing your words. Please do not disappoint with delays, for anticipation held too long becomes disappointment and grief.
Immediately, the council began arguing until the third last ranking member lifted a clawed hand. Perhaps we should send landing coordinates before they grow impatient, he asked. The arguing turned to whether or not the member's point of order should be recognized when he was a Shavashan. During the argument of whether or not to recess for a full rotation or a quarter, another message appeared. My companions grow agitated. I apologize, but they are overstimulated by the thoughts of assisting you. Might I receive landing coordinates so they feel that progress is being made? As it stands, I've been required to agree to security details to assure my companions that my safety will be assured. The Most High, who have been feeling the strangest emotion, one he could not name despite having mastered his emotion for three centuries, starred at the body before him. They cannot decide upon what colors of leaves to chew, he realized, his heart studying in agitation as he curled his feeding tendrils around the mouth in anxiety. They will still be arguing when those terrible machines break into the very chamber, and then argue over who died the worst. Without consulting, the other members using executive power so long unused it was viewed as a mere codified abnormality, he transmitted the coordinates of the nearest spaceport and included a message. We await your arrival. The answer was immediate. I am coming with my guard. The council chamber erupted in fury as other council members protested what he had done. The only warning the spaceport got was a message, he is coming, that broke through the data streams and screamed for an every display. It arrived moments before half a dozen spears of light raked down from the sky, raising up clouds of dust and obscured the vision. The scanners detected nothing but a flare of kinetic energy being dumped into Hajam's space, as if a battleship had made the transition from real space. When the dust had cleared, a giant bipedal figure was revealed, kneeling on the plastic of the landing field, colored dull patterns of gray and black. The mottled scheme made them hard to pick out against the background of the city, confused optics as to depth, as if they were 2D projected in front of a 3D of the city, often rippling and to appear as if they were made up of what was beyond them. As one, they stood up, then maintenance techs found themselves gaping as they rose to their full height. Higher than the guidance station, higher than the beacon tower, they loomed over the starport on legs twenty meters thick. Omni-targeting, a linkage engaged, they rumbled. In the rough circle formed by a massive bipedal robots or spaceships or whatever they were, was a square made up of four large ships, as large as cargo haulers. Inside that square was an elegantly formed shuttle, lavishly decorated. The cargo haulers dropped their sides and opened with a clang that resonated across the city. From inside poured rank after rank of massive figures clad in ornate heavy power armor, the plates abnormally thick. They marched in perfect unison until they were in front of a larger brothers. With a shout, they went to kneeling in front of the giants, their heavy, bulky weaponry held at the ready. Vehicles, squat and deadly, bristling with weapons and twinkling with shields, moved on tracks, repulsor fields, anti-grav and wheels out of the cargo haulers and took up an inner circle between the giants and the cargo lifters. The cargo lifters closed the panels and those watching realized with horror that they were seeing wasn't cargo haulers as gun ports opened up and the weapons came online. Most of the starport staff fled. 
The commander of the security force stared at the executor who was demanding, his tendrils shaking in rage and his mouth almost foaming, that the security forces attack the forces arranging themselves in the primary landing pad. The head of security force, a normally peace-loving being, drew his pistol and shot the executor through the open mouth. The front of the smallest craft, the ornate shuttle, unfolded an around saucer-like vehicle, a darkened and opaque bubble on the center of the top slowly hummed out. It was surrounded by a mass of bipedal figures and lacked color, only flat black coloring their surfaces. Massive rifles were in their hands, cannon-sized tubes extending straight up from the back and right sides. Their footfalls cracked the plascrete and the spaceport as they followed the vehicle. The vehicle made its way slowly, stately, and to the United Galactic Council chambers when it arrived a dark bubble detached, revealing itself to be an egg shape, and it hummed into the building. One of the massive figures ripped the door off when it opened it, staring at the door with its visor-covered face, as if it didn't understand how the door had come off with its war steel hand. The high secretary, whose nerves were stretched to the limit, peeked over her desk in front row of the massive figures stopped in front of her. Their surface was matte lighting drinking the black. Their arms and legs were thick machinery that hissed and whirred and purred. Their torsos were solid blocks with plates angled to provide the best deflections. They glimmered and shimmered slightly with some kind of shielding. They crunched down to stop in front of the desk. After a moment, they spotted somehow, as if they were able to move aside without motion. The egg moved forward. Might I have directions to the High Council Chamber, honored one who serves others' convenience? The egg asked in a unified galactic standard with a smooth tones and a calming accent. The secretary nodded, gulping with both throats, and brought up a map and directions on it, using her wingtip to flip towards the egg. The metal figure with his left moved, his arm extending it and fist closing with a crunch. On its black face was the symbols that appeared... Neutral face emoticon. Access denied, flashed on her screen for a moment. She is harmless, honored Warborg. Do not impede her services and sworn task, dutiful one. The egg purred. The Warborg opened his hand and Axis granted and lowered his arms. After a moment, the egg made another purring noise. Excellent. You have attended to your duty most splendidly. You have not only my thanks, but my thanks of my Terran Confederacy. The secretary nodded and the egg hummed away, two of the massive figures escorting it. She hid under a desk when she realized all the massive figures but two of them would be staying with her. The knock on the door startled the master of ceremonies, who had nearly fallen asleep as the high council members were largely fallen into sulking. He jumped up, yanking open the doors to reveal the dark grey opaque egg flanked on either side by two huge matte black bipedal robots. May I come in? The egg purred. Uh, yes? The master of ceremonies answered, wondering which council member was showing up in such a matter. The egg moved in, silent and stately pace. The two mechanical bipeds moved next to him, the sound of the gears whirring, the faint hiss of steam whispered, and the hum of electronics audible to the master of ceremonies' ears. The egg moved to the center of the council chamber, coming to a halt, the massive robot figures stopped on either side, and the members of the High Council stared in confusion, wondering which council member was inside the egg. 
the egg vanished with the pup leaving behind five figures. Four were smaller versions of the first, their heads bristling with cybernetics, their carapace different colors, and one green, one black, one russet, one gold. All of them looked around, their antennae twitching. The biggest one had bone white and clad in swaths of soft blue material. It was sitting with its four lower legs folded, its two atrophied and vestigial blade-like arms held tight against its chest, its two gripping hands were clasped in front of it, and its multifaceted white eyes glittered in the lights of the council chamber as it slowly rubbed the vestigial wings together. It was also twelve foot tall praying mantis. Silence descended on the council chamber as the shock of what they were seeing soaked in. Their being took a moment of silence, relishing in it, savoring it, before breaking it by concentrating on the speaker. It appears that you have a precursor problem, the small russet one said. The council chamber exploded in shouting. Manted intelligence memo, silent communications, have made contact, and before the rulers, many have no inner voice. This is going to be bad. End of chapter. Chapter 17 Eaglet Kalshina Crash Rider pressed himself against the wall at the same time as his two chummers did the same. They held still, trusting in their hollow camo to prevent the silent machines, bristling with spikes and blades, from spotting them as the machines moved down the hallway in perfect lockstep. Crash Rider waited ten pulses, then held up his black, moanodized cyber arm to motion his chummers to follow him. The arm replaced in the game to useless meat space that one had been burnt and scorched. The nerves reduced to screaming fire as the artery exploded from the biofeedback and now hung slack on his meat shoulder. The group of three moved carefully through the facility, streaming waterfalls of runic fire covering some walls. Some doors were blocked by spikes and bladed code, and three more times they had to press themselves into the nooks and crannies of mechanicals moved by. Some more draped in raw and bleeding skins of their recent victims' social media profiles and chatted via the ruins of one another's mechanical glee. But they were part of the elite boys, the best of the best. Survivors of everything that could be thrown at them. They'd seen worse. Crash Rider knelt down next to a barrier of snarling, twisting, flowing, glowing neon ruins and muttered with warnings of dire fate if so much as touched. He brought out his chrome cyberdeck, plugged in the wires into the jack in his head, an induction link was long gone, burnt out in the game. His left oral nerves burnt out in the meat space, he closed his eyes and saw Kalshina's name flow up, along with the last picture he could find of her. The last where she wasn't screaming. He tapped out his code on her and the deck went live, showing the complex twisting venomous serpents that made up the door lock. He twisted them until their heads bit their own tails, curled them, circled them, and gave them a half-twist. The code of the door followed smoothly. They moved through into a chamber beyond. Massive glowing racks of supercomputers extended off into infinity, electricity crackling across them, plasma spiders scurrying and looking for any intruders. The trio were silent as Crash Rider knelt down and deployed the cyberdeck again. They watched nervously as the picoseconds ticked by, stretching into nanoseconds, into seconds, until almost a full minute had gone by. 
Ash Rider suddenly punched out, falling against his chummer, trembling and sweating from jump shock. Where's the god of buzz buzz now now? Crash Rider gasped in street speak, clawing at the steel talion. Massa says bad things, things come come. Steel Talon yanked her chummer up, throwing his meat arm over her shoulder. The three runners threw themselves through the door and let their feet make them their namesakes. Getting out was faster than getting in. Corridors were shorter. Fences were meant to keep people from getting in, not out, and a whole facility seemed to be paralyzed. As they burst out the facility, they saw a white square hanging in midair. At the same time, the screech erupted from the building. There is only enough for one. Neon Baby looked back and saw the building itself was shifting and changing, tearing its way free of the neon ground. Saw its eyes open and sweep across the ground in hatred, seeking who dared come near it. A smog. Weezer was inside a smog. Neon Baby yelled in street speak right before they plunged through the white rectangle. Everything went They were stretched even as they were squeezed, and for a second they all were a part of eternity and a part of entropy. The young baby looked back and saw the end of the tube, the way that they had entered, stretched and warped, the tube screaming in agony as the black and red maw pushed its way in. The side of the data tube spit as the head of the giant machine pushed in deeper, roaring and screeching as it did so. Then there was three, falling out of the wide rectangle and onto a broken and dusty ground. Crash Rider knelt in the dust, coughing and spitting up blood. Steel Talon got to her knees, lifting her SMG and coughing. Neon Baby lunged to his feet, grabbing a grenade off his belt. Wizard got some boom boom da tubes, he yelled and threw one. Two, three grenades inside the rectangle as everyone else scrambled away. The rectangle flashed twice and collapsed. Get out of the impact zone, a figure in military camo yelled, gesturing wildly. Use his run run, big boom boom, he yelled, switching to street speak. The three runners looked around and realized where they were. The Makalak fusion reactor battle zone, held for almost six months by the Botan regiment. A force of street Sam turned soldiers who refused to back up a single step and face the digital onslaught through Galnet nodes the government refused to shut down. Together, they scrambled to the figure, tumbling into its fighting position as a dense data packets of twisting runes slammed into the ground around them, sending up plumes of neon dust and burning chrome. Above them, the sky, the color of a TV tuned to a dead station, groaned in pain and seemed to bulge. Neo, we need an exit, Steel Talion screeched out into a headset. Crash Rider looked at the soldier, who looked beaten and battered, but still defiant. You so gotta hold sir, it off, bang bang, mooey mooey. The soldier looked at him, wiping the dirt from his face. What is it? The sky tore, his anti-air emplacements began to fire. Rockets, lasers, plasma beans, packets of code washed in grief and hatred all slammed into the sky as a tear began to widen. A smog, Neon Baby said. The soldier nodded, looking at Crash Rider. Is it important? Crash Rider nodded, switching to real code to avoid misunderstanding. More important than even the fusion plant. The soldier hefted a big rotary autocannon. Go! We'll hold, or we'll die here. Got an exit, Steel Talion yelled out. Crash Rider turned in time to see the door open up, a hundred paces away. 
There is only enough for one. Go, Mr. Cover, the soldier yelled, leveling his autocannon at the moats floating down from the terrible jaws that had forced their way through the crack in the sky. The trio scrambled out of the fighting position, running for the gate. Moats crashed down, revealing themselves to be machines made of vile and blasphemous code. They snapped their pincers, clacked their jaws, and flexed their talons as they oriented themselves. Two were between the trio and the gate. Or I'll doon, the soldier bellowed, leveling his 300 TB SSD autocannon and clamping down on the smart trigger. The autocannon was a regiment both ends spray-painted from the barrels. Heavy shells, packets of code, slammed into the right hand of the creature, flipping it over, probing at its belly, finding a weak point, and slashing it apart its code. The rate of fire made it look like a solid shaft of light. Brrrt. The beam of the rotary cannon swept across the trio, the smart link holding back four bullets by a microsecond and then locking onto another one, stopping it forward and rushing towards not the runners, but the gate itself. It stopped dead, hunkered down, and kept advancing, ignoring the auto-fire, prying at its armor and firewalls. More of the Bothan regiment joined the fire as more and more moats slammed into the ground, their air defenses pummeled, and the head of the smog as it pushed its way into the sky. Neon Baby stopped at the gate, looking at Crash Rider. Isn't worth it, Chama? she asked. Crash Rider nodded. Drink me to freeware, Chama, Neon Baby said, hefting up his heavy rifle. He checked his mag, proxy piercing viry rounds. Use a go-go now now, Neon Baby said. Crash Rider didn't pause, didn't take any more time, and threw himself into his nice doozy. Shark, if business are games, and he looked in a by half nine, by half an old stung his ewks, his dirt. The rainy, dark street, gold neon flickered across the dead building facades. In the distance, lights of a city could be seen, but the data highways were empty here. Steel Talon tumbled to the pavement, barely keeping a hold of her SMG. She turned towards the white rectangle of the gate. It turned red, flashed twice, and displayed the last connection lost to host code, and vanished. Crash Rider could see his bike, the two-wheeled ground-effect vehicle, high-powered gas engine to replace the purring weak electric one. The extra stripped away, the cyber control rig expertly attached to it. It sat next to the sidewalk, old scream sheets flapped against the chrome-spoked wheels. We gotta move, Crash Rider yelled, grabbing the steel talion. The big street Sammy nodded, running for her bike. Enhanced reflexes and musculature got the big street machine there first and she jumped onto the back, facing backwards, cocking her SMG and checking the rounds. TCI port searching IP traces. It would have to do. Crash Rider threw a leg on the seat and grabbed the handlebars with one hand and pulled free the data cord with the other. He kicked started to life and plugged the data cord in. Everything sinking together, Crash Rider maxed the throttle and rear-tired bike of the screeching into the dark, wet tarmac for a moment before it grabbed. Front wheel lifted for a few dozen feet before it slammed down and they were off. A bellowed screech echoing through the alleys of the barrens. Something big, big is coming, Steel Talon yelled. 
Can't talk, must go faster, Crash Rider yelled. He revved the engine to redline and swerved between the wreckage, burnt out and scattered vehicles littering the road. The buildings were pie, windows shattered and black, some lit by feeble candlelight, a few with pale faces staring out, but most empty. Graffiti started appearing, specks at first, then letters, then runes, then whole sentences. The lawsex SWAT vehicle crashed into the road behind them, the road rippling and flexing around it, the building swaying like gelatin. Crash Rider hit the throttle, ramming off the first ripple into the air and holding it for a long second, letting the ripples pass beneath them, before snapping back down to the damaged data tube. There is only enough for one. The SWAT vehicle's sirens screamed. Coiled metal tentacles reached out, realized that they were too far to retract it, clicking their graspers in mechanical frustration at being denied the digital flesh. Dill Talon hosed the entire mag of her SMG into the armored windshield of the SWAT tank and grinned with neon teeth as it suddenly slowed. There, that graffiti. Crash Rider inhaled and yelled at, Hack the planet! Fires lit in the alleys, and it was roared back at him. Hack the planet! They were past the fires, and Steel Talon saw the street boys flood out from the alley into the street, pushing burning cars. Their heavy cyber muscles were covered in tattoos. Sweat poured from their brows, but still, they brought out heavy weapons that would tear Steel Talon's cybernetic arms off just to try to lift it. The Arnie Awesomes raised their firepower and bellowed out their war cry. Let off some steam, Bennett. They opened up fire and SWAT vehicle and Crash Rider cut the corner hard enough to glittering data pulses peeled from the tires as he sprayed the facades of the buildings. Crossing a bridge, Crash Rider yanked the bike to the side, lifting the front wheel, slamming it into the barricade, and with a scream of tortured code and warping data strings, the bike caught air. For a second, they were suspended in blackness between one trace and the next, forcing quark drift between two dozen traces of tachyon wire. For a moment, the two runners saw all of Galnet, then... The world came crashing back as the bike slammed down onto railroad tracks. It shuddered and thudded on the tires until Crash Rider revved the engine and popped the clutch and snapped the bike onto the rail-hand superconductor trail. Crash Rider goosed it, redlining the engine. But that didn't matter. What do we have? Steel Talon yelled. Core data from Smog's ROM, Crash Rider yelled back. He leaned forward and Steel Talon did the same and the back tire dangerously close to her. Behind her, she could see it. The train tunnel under the bridge that they jumped from was bulging, a tear through the middle, flames licking out. He wants us bad, Steel Talon yelled out. Crash Rider ignored her, concentrating on keeping the bike on the supercooled strip of metal and code and data. Neo, we need an exit, Steel Talon cried out. On Galnet's supercruise thread, yes, I know, do it. The thread bulged further and the flaming skull burst from under the bridge. The bow of the train made blackened and twisted cybernetics crashing together with the still screaming runners bleeding neon blood from between the dead spaces. He could see it coming. A station just beyond that, a train engine roared out. There is only enough for one. 
Stop saying that! Steel Talon screamed back, firing another magazine of spam pop-up rounds at the train's open jaws. Into the station, the pillars whipped by, graffiti on the walls. Hack the planet! Crash Riot cried out desperately. The daughters of Chrome, Loth, Dropped in stealth shields, women in tight leather spandex, cleavage and thigh revealed, four chrome arms to help with their two fresh arms. They waited until Crash Rider sped by, smoke pouring from his engine and from the hubs of his tires. They threw their data nets across the tracks. They poisoned the data nets, wrapped their ends around the columns, and vanished back into stealth. Climbing through the hidden ports, sliding behind the invisible proxies, jumping through the unregistered trial software. Crash Rider kept going. The gate was ahead. In the middle of the tracks, he swore the streets peak as he dropped the supercruise trail, and tracks bumped and shuddering. Spokes shattered, and neon fragments of code sprayed from the wheels of the bike. The train smog hit the nets. The poisoned IP sniffer, port jackers cutting deep into the firewalls, collapsed. It roared, and the nets howled, but no longer cut deep. No longer held it back as it charged forward. It pulled the pillars down. Digital dust plumed around the crash rider as the station collapsed on top of the smog. It roared with anger and started to shoulder its way up. The daughters of Chrome of Loth swarmed it, jamming deep with their coped probe stingers, squatting down. Their stingers descended and punctured deep into its code. Some died, shriveling up with a banshee scream. But others grew plump and lush. Secrets spilled their poison wombs as they flicked and vanished as they fled, laughing and mocking smog. It didn't care. Its searching eyes were locked on Crash Rider. Crash Rider hated to do it, hated to lose it. It was an ARG reward, irreplaceable. But this wasn't an alley brawl against a rival ganger, a street slum bag against another go-gang. This was Corp War. No. This was bigger than Corp War. This was war. He led the tire, hit the rectangle, and dissolved, the bike slamming to a stop, beginning the accordion up, throwing both riders through the white rectangle as the bike destroyed itself against the illegal data line cross line. Crash Rider managed to. Tuck and roll as he fell out of the rectangle. It was already blinking red, the unique code of the bike stripping through the destroying the code of the gate. Connection! Steel Talon 2 flew, host through, lost. The gate blinked away. Steel Talon's arm didn't make it. Crash Rider got to his feet, pointing at what they were after. Stu's diner. What do you have? Steel Talon gasped as she wrapped a tame overwrite virus into the neon blood spurting stump of her soul meat arm. They think I have the encryption key for the mid-grade ground assault mech shields, Crash Rider said, pulling the friends in as fast as he could. This run had already cost him his fellow ARG player. He wasn't about to lose another. What do you really have? She gasped as they pushed open the back door. They stumbled into Mr. Johnson's private lounge. The suited man, his face, a colorless blank mannequin's face, looked up. Crash Rider tossed Mr. Johnston his cyberjack, the ROM-encoded secondary master algorithm for the planetary harvester class vessels. 
Crash Rider gasped. Was the Hexa Romhack saucer smog? Steel Talon gasped. Mr. Johnson caught it, nodded and yanked the cord and gasped it from nowhere. His room dissolved and vanished. In a room in an unnamed hab complex in a dreary city on a worthless planet in an abandoned system, Eagly shuddered and groaned as the dumb shock took him. He felt hands rolling his meat body on his side as he vomited. He was still smiling when consciousness bled. For you, Kalshina, he sent out to the spirit of the girl who had held his hand on that playground once. Galnet News The market-lit fusion reactor suffered a magnetic containment failure and the primary and backup computer systems failed this morning, resulting in 12.5 megaton explosion, destroying the city of Malkalet. Casualties are estimated to be tens of millions. More as the story breaks. From Mantid Intelligence to Digital Sapiens Intelligence, Oracles say something is coming, something war-changing. Build more thinking nodes. Nothing follows. From Diginet to Mannet. We'll keep eyes out on the networks. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 18. Speaks in loud spaces, sat in the fifth contemplative position, his legs folded in his abdomen, his vestigial blade limbs pulled up into the humans called prayer. His grasping hands folding at what was his thorax met his long abdomen. His antennae quivered softly, sampling the emotions of those around him and keeping contact with his little ones. All of those around him except the two gods, he could hear them, even though he was able to exclude them through a long training and a quirk of genetics and growth jelly, where the council was either the mental equivalent of a dial tone or a confused whiplash of emotions overlaid with fear, suspicion, resignation, or avarice. Two minds growled and snarled in an emotional equivalent of running a mandible file across one's antennae. Warning and threatening keep out, with a large portion of the humans called Get Fricked for Good Measure. But Speaks was used to that. He had been dealing with humans since he had left the quiet solace of the chambers of the Elder Sleepers. In a way, it was comforting, like being covered in a suit of hissing spiders that spit bees. He had never been around equals before. His multifaceted eyes were blind, but he could still watch the council beings surrounding him. The design of his little ones allowed him to lift their triangular heads and view the complete 360 degrees around him. Even beyond, there was the gesticulating. He could sense their emotions, hear the thread of their inner voices, feel the emotions that they hid from everyone else. Speaks was saddened at how many of them lacked an inner voice. After a while, the council's outrage was spent and the final protest sputtered slowly to silence. Speaks reached out to his speaker, meshing his thoughts with his mind, which welcomed him, happiness raiding out from it as it raised itself up, ready to snatch words and thoughts and meaning from the sounds. Do you need more time to discuss things amongst one another? Your outrage has only killed a few million. Do you need time to increase the August Conclave's body count? The speaker trolled. The chamber exploded in range again. Speaks didn't care. Every moment he could hear untold crying out of fear and agony go before going silent. To Speaks, it was as if the stars were going out one by one. Despair, the little black mantid whispered to him across the interwoven thoughts. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. He quoted him, 
an ancient Terran poem that raged against what was their very council so enamored with. The poem inscribed at the base of a statue of Terrasol known as Do You Need Assistance speaks let she's mind drift, taking comfort in the snarling rage growling and snapping from these two honor guards. He knew that, should these beings attempt to raise their hands against him, they would protect him with the very lives, dying in pieces to protect them and shield them from the violence that so terrified his people. The violence within him as it was within the Terrans. Do these beings understand such a thing? Speaks asked himself. The little alabaster one told him that they nay, they couldn't. They can only see what their grasping hands can snatch close, ignorant of blade arms of others. She could see more clearly than he could through his hunger. Finally, the outrage died down again. He paid no attention to any of it, instead reaching out and testing the various emotions, having the green little one commit memory which ones he would seek out privately in the chambers away from prying eyes. No matter what words and sentiments you cast upon me like chaff upon the wind, it does not change the simple fact that you cannot defeat them. You cannot save any of your species from the precursors, he said through a little russet speaker. Again, the council chamber exploded. A fantasy of climbing into the podium of that one being with a large head was banging upon, striking down with a perfect clean strike, pulling the being upwards as it screeched, grabbing it with his grasping hands, bringing his jaws down on its skull, cracking it, crushing it, shearing through the flesh and bone to find uh, his cybernetic implant shocked him. Not that anyone would have noticed the faint wing flutter at the edge of his one vestigial wing. Both his honor guards powered up their weapons, targeting speaks, then realized the omni-targeting linkages and let their power trickle from their weapons as Speaks was calmed by his prosthetic. The little green one rubbed the blade arms together to scrape them through the mandibles the way a Terran's mind sharpened and focused on the five before the gentle current form. The prosthetic calmed it. The council that thought that it was cleaning itself out of primitive instinct. They had no idea how close the grand unified council chamber and beyond came to being a slaughterhouse. Speaks relaxed, cleaning his blade arm slowly, licking along their blunted edges, cleaning them with an intricate care, as if he had never been altered by gene mods from their razor-sharp beautiful lethality. For a split second, he had an image of the heavy war bog on his height, holding him into the air by his throat, its other arm drawn back with a piston-like fist clenched and aimed at his head as the grasping hands held the Terran by the throat by the blade arm slashing through his war-steel armor. Both of them looked at a death embrace, coolant spilling out from the war bog and the echo leaked out from the speak's armored neck. The two of them... The light electric shock was a harsh to his mind, and the aftershocks of his mind sampled the taste of the minds around him. He could silence them all in an instant. He knew it. He could simply reach out and snuff out their minds, stop their thoughts, freeze their muscles, hold them silent in place. Even still, their heartbeats let his thoughts ripple out and the chamber throughout the building, stilling the thoughts of the inhabitants and stripping away the thoughts and memories and emotions devouring them into their own hive mind of his abdomen, his mind rippling across this very city, taking control of the bodies once he devoured their minds. Except that would cause glorious fight to the death with the two warbogs whose minds would bellow in rage as they instinctively attacked him, 
glorious, glorious combat with a mind that could withstand the punishing assault of his will, and uh, the shock made him quiver, and the little ones go still. The warborgs didn't let the charge trickle from their weapons back into the power pack. Instead, they left their weapons charged. A metallic catrinkalak was sounded from two borgs as they loaded their rifles and the cannons on their backs stilled the entire council. Many beings quailed and cringed back as the two massive cannons slowly rotated up to the backs. Trading 60mm bulk-fed collapsed density depleted uranium shells jacketed in unstable deuterium, moving slowly over the shoulder to point at uh, the mantis creature. The confusion at the action caused kept the council chamber go silent. A slight hush colored the speaker's wings and slowly colored the two lines, one on either side of his abdomen. He reached out for the little russet speaker, calming its mind, and spoke through it. I have come before this body, not to ask for permission, but merely to inform. The little russet one said, its voice in a high-pitched peep that some of the council thought it had done to make it appear cute. One noted that one of the big armored figures aimed his rifle at it and wondered why. It was so cute and harmless looking. You should know and understand not only what you face, but what you have no choice but to rely upon to save you from the onslaught that you cannot defeat. Speaker said, and her voice slowly lowering, If you are ready to hear my thoughts signify a vote of yes upon your podium. The little black one spoke, Vote no, and we shall leave, and you shall wonder why it all happened. Speaks found himself trembling and willing his implants to shock him down to his central ganglia. The vote was carried, barely passing, and the electric shock broke into Speak's fantasy of exploding into a sudden and violent motions, screeching in his species' ancient war cry. Omni-targeting data was shared across his linkages. We will hear your words, the High Council speaker said. I would rather make you hear my thoughts, speaker thought to himself, being so close to the species made digestive juices slowly coat his mandibles, but he cleaned it away rather than just to let the escort seed drip from his jaw. Mandibles. The little gold one shocked him. Hard. Ancient times, before your species, were much more than barely sentient creatures crawling, not understanding. The precursor of war occurred between... The speaker started. Several of the council being shouted that they knew the history didn't get on with it. A half-dozen screamed that the precursors were a mere rumor, baseless and unfounded rumors designed to frighten and spread conspiracies amongst the mentally ill. Speaks disconnected himself from the sight organs on everything around him, and slowly cleaned his blade arms as cattle around him brayed and whined and mooed, as if their words were crude vocal sounds mattered at all. The gold one shocked him again, and that brought his attention to his guards that one of the cybernetic implants was showing signs of overheating. Wisps of vapor drifted up from the mouths of the 60mm cannons, and the council was stilled by the sound of the super-dense capacitors charging. Between two races, the speaker continued, he had to impart this knowledge to them to make them understand what they faced. Those races built vast machines to combat one another. Again, the council chamber fell to arguing whether or not the precursor races could have built what were ravaging their worlds. How could they have lost a hundred million years? Speaks slowly stood up to his full height, a twelve-foot mantis with thick exoskeleton armor and thick biomechanical muscle. His blade arm suddenly molted and a dead carapace puffing away, the blades glittering in the light and the council chambers. 
Thirty billion viewers shrunk back as grasped as the sight of a mantid triggered some kind of primordial instinct in their brains. The council members all went still, their muscles frozen, their words stuck in their throats, even their hearts stilled as their brains were squeezed somehow. The invisible wave crashed through the building, washed over the city, and began to cover the world. Hear my words in despair, speaks in loud spaces roared out with his mind. Billions screamed in terror. We precursors realized there was only enough resources in a finite universe to support a single race. One side's war machines determined that they would be that race, and their creators fled their machines. Speaks in loud spaces howled into every mind in the fractured microsecond. His little ones went perfectly still. We're left behind our cattle to be exterminated by the other side's death machines. Speaks roared out. Now they've come to finish the job. Only those who can withstand one such as I have any hope against them. He exploded into motion. The council watched as two armored figures roared with wrath and hatred, abandoning weapons and shipped their weight to bring the fists to bear. Speaks turned inside out and splashed into his component parts as the implosion charge, forged into the wire that ran from his skull to the end of his first abdomen, was triggered as he moved faster than the cybernetic embedded in his spine would allow. Now you know, the little gold one said, looking at the terrified beings in the council chamber. She looked around the gathered politicians. Do you understand? Manted Free Worlds External Memo now they know. Terrasol protect us from ourselves. Nothing follows. Confed memo to all. Safety precautions went well. Now they know why they can't win on their own. From what we've seen, we have to help them break the chains laid by the ancestors' minds that still hold them today. May the Omni Messiah protect them. End of chapter. Chapter 19 the gold mantis, small and compared to the massive forebearer, deployed a small cube on the floor in front of her. A rod sprang out of the cube and assembled beings, still shocked from the psionic attack, cringing back with a multitude of gasps. The rod unfolded around the disc, creating a small disc with a golden mantid stepped on. It hummed at the command of her cybernetics and rose into the air. She waited for everyone to calm down, her blade arms folded carefully and her grasping hands holding onto the bottom of them. Finally, the chamber settled down. In the city beyond, beings moved back to their tribes, nervously approaching, afraid to look but curious at the sight of the small gold mantis who still held on the hovering disc. Across the world, beings shook free of the psychic attack and approached their tribe, fearful but curious. The precursor war happened because of my forebearers, like the one you saw, and the others, of whom records have been lost, could not contain their appetites, and, uh, upon learning that even the universe is finite, went to war over who would eat the last. Her voice was pure and clean, and fluttered her wings and preened as the spoke. Council had learned its lesson and did not interrupt. My species consumed not only meat, but emotions and even thought and memories, uplifted species to bear sentience, able to feel emotion and form memories, but not enough to develop civilized thoughts. She said she signaled with the ruin of a unified galactic standard, the equivalent of a shrug. What our opponents ate or did is lost to the epochs long past. Silence reigned for a long moment as she paused to clean her antennae. 
The councilman opened his mouth, but one of the massive robots made a growling noise like steel gears grinding away their teeth against a whetstone. His mouth shut quickly, and the tendrils curling around the crest deflating in fear. For reasons that I've been lost, but many have pondered upon, both sides built huge mechanized war machines. As you can see, my people tend to be tiny outside of our warrior and, well, ruling caste such as the speaker was. She said she used this place to show a little cartoon version of a wildly running back and forth to escape shoes and feet, wearing a big floppy hat and flowers on it and clutching at a purse almost as big as she was, with the little cartoon spirals floating up from her cartoon head to signify frustration. There were a few titters. That aside, we built intelligent war machines. We conquered, or thought we did, a digital artificial sentient's natural tendency to seek to protect itself by wiping everyone else out. By some means, we no longer understand. She put up a ruin of sigh. Sadly, our knowledge of our ancient language and reasoning are lost to the hunger of history as Speaker was lost to his own appetites. She paused there to clean her antenna again and take a sip from a drop of water that she'd lifted up from the disc. A holograph of a ruin asking for patience floated into the air. Although there were questions, the recent events stilt tongues. Those who still would have talked stared at the robots beside them. The little gold mantis set down the water drop and straightened back up, signaling with a hologram in front of her that she was going to continue. As records will show, one such as the speaker can stop and devour the thoughts of digital sapiens, providing that they can get within range a reason for our forgotten enemy to build so large. She flashed a ruin of humor. So you can see by my size why there's a possibility my people built so large. We are tiny people, and some are aware of beings that can be quite impressed with size when perhaps we should not be. A ruin flashed for the double entendre that she preened for a moment. There were some polite chuckles through the chamber. Some of the earthier species and beings laughed out loud at the humor of an insect so tiny making a joke. Fear began to be replaced by curiosity. Sometime during the terrible war, where entire planets were wastefully wiped clean, one science mechanical surrogates realized that the truth was that it imparted in them. The reason for the war also applied to them. The ruin flashed with a regretful sigh. They also realized that in a finite universe, there was only enough resources for one. And why wouldn't they be the one? Why should they turn it over to the biologicals? who have short lifespans and cannot be trusted stewards of the finite resources. It was then that worst one side than the others turned up on us, their creators throwing back our own war cries to one another. The mantid flashed a ruin of patience and sipped the water drop again, before cleaning and grasping its hands and flashing the ruin to resume. It went badly for both sides. My ancestors left our... <clears throat> food species behind and fled, taking a risky gamble. We would have both sides chase us through the scorched wastelands of our war, through the enemy territory, and then hide while the rebellious servitors destroyed our enemy. She paused, taking time to clean her blade arms and grasping hands and then her antennae. She fished for the ruins. Please excuse my fatigue. I am discomforted. As she did so, one of the council flashed a ruin of her attention. She pointed at it and flashed a ruin of assent. The council being stood up. Do you need us to go into recess? The council being asked as he sat down. Thank you for your kind consideration, but no, it is more than us. All worlds are watching and eager for the ugly, terrible, horrible truth. 
the little gold mantid said. She rubbed her wings together and then flashed a rune that was ready to continue. On the thousands of world beings hurried back to the kitchen from Nutri Dispenser when family members called out that the little gold mantis was going to continue. While the strategy worked, drawing all our mechanical creations after us into our enemy and beyond our escape, in the end did my ancestors little good beyond sheer species survival. The gold mantid said she made the ruin for ironic sadness and continued. My species, constrained to a few planets with only a few spacecraft, fell to intercene warfare. When the dust settled, only a few scattered planets contained our race. Our space vessels were gone, our advanced technology smashed, just for forebearers desperately trying to survive on worlds that were chosen out of desperation. She flashed holograms of other mantids at her fleet. In time, we separated, became slightly different, but the Hive Queens and the Omni-Speakers still ruled over our hives. Each advance, we fell victim to what is called the Fermi Paradox, collapsing again and again. We had our own Fermi boundary. When one hive split into two, those two hives would eventually go to war over limited resources. The gold one paused, black mantid and the green mantid were signaling hollow ruins of distress. She waited until they signal ruins to continue before speaking again. Millions, tens of millions, over a hundred million years passed before we reached space again. Some colonies called out into the void, then were silence. But we only know that through the archaeological records. Then, of course, we found other colonies that went to war, falling to our own Fermi Paradox boundary of more than one hive, she said. Then we discovered signals. Signals meant thought. It was alien thought. She waited for a moment before flashing a rune. It was delicious. All of the mantid flashed hollow ruins of distress and gold mantid paused. A hollow ruin representing questioning speaker flashed, and the gold one flashed the if I'm able to ruin. The questioner stood up. How are you, um? He asked, scurrying his tendrils in embarrassment and sat down. Different? The small gold one asked. The questioner flashed a questioning rune. The little gold one pointed at a big robot. Thanks to our friends, she said. There was an inhalation of fear to the thought that the mantid creatures had built those massive mechanical beings. No, not friends, the mantid said, flashing the ruin for negation on the ruin for reassurance. That is not a robot, it is a warborg, a human being who has undergone a full cybernetic conversion body replacement to amplify their combat abilities. It is driven by a living mind, a mind of a sapient being with morals and ethics, culture and society. That seemed to relax the gathered body. The trivet cameras moved in and got a better angles at the massive warborgs. Some cameras lingering on the belt of 60mm ammunition that gleamed in the silent menace. On the featureless faceplates of the warborgs flashed the unified galactic hollow rune for, I am expressing pleasure at your presence in a calming blue. Some of the viewers laughed. The little gold mantis gave it a few moments, pausing to take another drink from the droplet and clean her antennae. The others, one splashed that they were calmed again. When she felt the stress in the chamber ease, she flashed a rune for attention. As I was saying, thanks to our friends, we learned that our ancestors may have been titans striding across stars, smiting our foes and devouring what we pleased. But the great galactic wheel had turned and we were no longer the apex predator. She brushed an antenna and then continued. We encountered humans who approached us eagerly, clamoring they wished to be friends. 
She signaled the ruin for sadness and made motion to the small cleaning robot still cleaning up the mess the speaker had made. Omni speakers and hive queens had other plans. In cruel betrayal, we struck at the humans, and they recoiled, she said. She took another sip of the water droplet of the other flashed ruins of embarrassment and sadness. We thought them instantly beaten. Destroyed the queen, you win the war. She let a pause, waiting. We saw the humans go still, as prey do. We, in our hive queen's arrogance, mistook their reaction for fear, terror, and a borderline submission as we assaulted them, linked as one mind, our hunger held together as one, moving each as a perfect cog of the universe's perfect machine. But we had made a mistake, she paused again. You see, we had never encountered a murderous, all-consuming, overpowering rage. Even the hive queens quailed back as the humans exploded. Even the Omni-Speaker screamed in horror as something much worse than the great machines we still dimly remembered came out of every cattle world, every terrible broken and savage world, every shattered ruined city, out of every corner. Screaming their war cry, they overran us, crushed us beneath their armored treads, tore us limb from limb with their armored fists, ripped us into their very teeth. The others were flashing ruins of distress, but she powered through, shivering. They found our home planets. All of the small mantis people were rubbing their wings in distress and destroyed every single hive queen and omni-speaker. They used nanites to alter our genome so that we could never again produce a queen, and only rarely would we produce a speaker. Scorched away our royal jelly and loomed over our suddenly disconnected, sundered people. Their mailed fists clenched to deliver the final blow. They saw our confusion. They saw our panic, our bereavement as we were torn from the hive mind. And even as they screamed their war cry, they suddenly paused. The gods said, they spared us, they embraced us. They taught us to live without enslavement. She flashed for a pause and everyone waited, many staring at the two cyborgs in horror. She waited until the smaller ones flashed that they were composed and ready. She waited for the council beings to flash that they were ready. She saw a light for a single question flashing and signaled assent to the questioner. The gentle being stood, savannishing female, her scales dull and her tail within thin with age. If I might ask, gentle being, she bobbed her head in her nervousness then looked up. What is there a uh, war cry? I see it still disturbs you to think even though it is centuries past. All the mantids deflected their dismayed icons. Black one moved forward, extending himself to full three-foot height. I am word spoken, we fear, it announced, lifting its blade arms to over its head. And I should tell you... There was a pregnant pause. Words pointed to the two warborgs with his blade arms. Speak the words we fear, they cried out, a small voice. The two warborgs took a single step forward, their footsteps shaking the entire room. The roar lifted to the heavens, and more than a few council beings spelt the echo of the stars. Remember, Terrasol. Manted Free World's Message to Confed Now they all know. Will you protect us? Nothing follows. Terran Confederacy message to Manted Free Worlds. Always, in blood and fire, we are brothers. 
we faced the long darkness together. End of chapter. Chapter 20 Libao was nothing to anyone. It was a small world in a ways the galactic economy, political influence, manufacturing ability, or any other way that the United Galactical System cared about. Its people were a small people who had barely developed a star drive to get into jump space and travel to another planet. That planet had been important, a manufacturing hub for the leading tentacle of the unified civilizations. The little world had gone from dreams of starfaring and exploration and joyous advancement to locked into a little world. Immigration quotas, girl net bandwidth limits, and even exploitation limits within their own system. All were put in place by the United Civilized Races Council. After all, their world had been registered as the property of Okwewa's Pankuru Manufacturing nearly 3,000 years before the little people of Libao had even developed the ability to transmit or listen to radio waves. The Unified Legal Council had informed the people of Libao that if they intended to assert sovereignty over their own world, perhaps they should have filed a motion to appeal the claim register within the year of the first being filed. The fact that the people of Libao had not even developed a gear-driven clocks at that point was not any fault of the council. The people of Libao should have thought of that. And so Libao's dreams of being part of, maybe even founding some kind of interstellar society of equals died in a court of law before they even invented the metal-lipped pen. They tried protesting the only way that they knew how at that point. Violence. Their attempts were pitiful. They barely lasted a full decade before they were defeated again. The Unified Races Council ordered to that the people of Libao undergo therapy to remove the violent primitive instincts through social conditioning. The little land-dwelling amphibians were marched lockstep into camps and taught how to properly venerate Akwawa's Pakuru Manufacturing, a subsidiary of Nakuluk Entertainment Conglomerate and follow the commands and regulations of their elders. A little space facility of the Libawian tried and joy was raised for ecological reasons and coal-burning power plant was put in its place. After all, the Univite Space Council had already put a UPM bull, the much better spaceport in the crude native one. But by put, the people of Libao saw their cultural heritage sites wiped away in the name of modernization. With the destruction of history comes the destruction of cultural identity. After a generation or two, they became the loyal worker POD of UPM, spending their meager pay on necessities and a few simple luxuries as was proper. Still, some of them harbored resentment in their hearts. This wasn't how it was supposed to be, was it? The amphibians, half the size of a four-legged, four-armed, six-eyed, tendrilled overseers known as the Lanactalian, dug into burrows, squirreled away makeshift weapons, and made crew careful chains of communication. The Labaoians created a small units of resistance, each reporting to a leader, who only knew the name of one leader. They had recreated the resistance cell structure again. Forced to live outside the shining cities, they suffered often from vertigo, after all, they slowly gathered. The Langtalian were the ones enamored with the city, not the Lebowians. The thought was to bring down the high shining towers, bring the Langtalians down to the level of the amphibians. And so the Lebowians prepared and waited. But that was not why he was dying. He had become infected. It started simply. Twinkling points of light appeared out of space, and a planetary manager said that the lights were just mere tests. 
nothing for the Libawians to be concerned themselves with, and then the scanners went down. A space station began screaming. Libao's Galnet became a place of horror as infected and spread across the solar system. The Lanactalon counseled caution and not to be swayed by anti-unified propaganda, even as they boarded the ships to flee the system. Then sparks appeared in the sky as the orbital leisure stations were destroyed, ships were raked with fire and exploded, and everything but Galnet node was wiped from the sky. For three days, Libao had cringed away from the quiet darkness. The voice was broadcast across the world, a brain-twisting screech of absolute horror. There is only enough for one. Mechanical horrors landed on the spaceport, not with crashes, but landed with care before wading into the starship still in port. The newcomers tore apart the ships and their crews, then spread out, moving towards the manufacturing facilities. Private spaceships were destroyed in high orbit, their wreckage burst scattering, then gathered and processed. Cargo vessels were torn apart and reprocessed. Still, sparks blossomed in the night sky, little pinpricks that lit up and went out. Once in a while, there were long streaks in the night sky that ended up flashing pinpricks. The Libao first saw the mechanicals as liberators and rushed to greet them, only to be murdered en masse. The Libaoians all nodded to one another. Of course, it was just another monster from outside. The cult of the solitary borough were correct. Those who reached out a hand of friendship only had it torn off and made manacle wrapped around its wrist. The Libaoians scattered as best they could. The mechanicals concentrated on the Langtalon, herding them into the cities broadcasting the savage murders suffered by the Langtalan. The Libaoians thought that perhaps they just pretended none of it was going on. The mechanicals would leave them alone. Their pipe dream ended with shrieks of agony. The Libaoians learned in the next few turns on their world to avoid any technology higher than a fire and a sharp stick. A machine that found any primitive ones might chase them and kill a few, but largely ignored them after scanning quickly and any technology. A quick-thinking Labawian noted that every one of their people fitted the cybernetic link was gone, dead, their bodies torn apart. Any group larger than an ancient clutch was destroyed. The Labawians mourned for the lost dreams. Even being drones of a UPM was preferable from being torn from comfortable housing and forced to live in the mud, hunting with sticks to nearly extinct mussels and wildlife, drinking dirty water, and watching the city slowly burn. Labawians wept. They just wanted to be left alone. They just wanted to see what was beyond. Just wanted to meet other beings. But not like this. Not like this. Pinpricks appeared again in the sky. Only these ones did not go out. They got steadily brighter. As they council cities burned, sparks came to life and died back down around the burning stars. The Libawians looked up, wondering what was happening now. Even though a small part of them knew that it wouldn't matter. Whoever it was, their people would be nothing more than an amusement for the hunters at worst, slaves and drudges at best. Hope flickered and then went out. Libao was dying, not from the slamming impact of orbital guns, not from the mechanical murderers sweeping across the planet, not because the cities, bright and sparkling, were burning and being turned to horror-filled carnal houses. It was dying as hope died. Then came the message from the stars. As fires blossomed, new suns ignited in the sky, close enough that more than once night turned to day for long heartbeats. 
It vibrated off every ship of metal, bellowed in every speaker, howled from every hidden data port. We are the Confederacy. We've come to assist Hold the line, brothers. The Bowians huddled in their burrows, closing their large, expressive eyes, just wished the universe would go away. The message couldn't be meant for them. They were small, insignificant, and the universe viewed them as little more than slaves of their betters to be slain for the amusement at will. But some who harbored resentment towards UPM, who nursed flickering anger in their souls for the Langtalan, began to dig free caches wrapped in EM shielding and buried in iron-rich mud, began dreaming that perhaps this time things would be different. As the little Libawians watched streaks slip down from orbits into atmosphere and began speed towards the thickest concentration of machines, nuclear fire bloomed, pushed away the smoke of burning bodies, and left behind damaged and destroyed machines. Not the larger ones, of course. Those rose from where they had crouched, shaking off the smaller ones, and screeched their defiance at the newcomers. There is only enough for one. The newcomers better back. Freedom or death. The Bowians huddled up, caught between the two roaring forces. The braver of them lifted their googly eyes to look upon the land, raising their gaze to the sky again. Massive ships roared down from the sky, and the Labawians felt the thick, rubbery skin prickle up in fear. The last two times that had happened, the universe had shown them that they were the butt of a cosmic joke. As the Labawians watched the machines, the new masters of Labau swarmed the massive ships which responded with counterfire. Some ships exploded in midair. More didn't. Even more rained down from high orbit. The ships didn't bother to slow down to a gentle speed and then slowly levitate down to the earth. The ones came in fast, rockets screaming as they suddenly braked. Radiation poured from their nozzles, scorching the ground, burning away vegetation and turning dirt to plasma-hardened rock. The ship slammed down and the sides opened even as the gun ports continued firing. Parts of the massive ships detached, moving on treads, deploying guns that raked the sky with shrieking munitions. The parts of the ships that took up positions around their broodmother, linking together their fire, adding their own roaring voice to the defiance lashing out at the machines that still swarmed. From inside the ship came more vehicles, massive bipeds with made entirely of metal. More weapons were raised, and the machine's assault began to tatter began to break. The wave of metal pushed back further and further by the guns. The very sky seemed to catch fire as the newcomers threw their fury into the faces of the machines, unleashing endless wrath into the machines without numbers. Shell by shell, beam by beam, the newcomers drove the machines back. But that wasn't enough for the newcomers. They spread out like spokes from a hub on the landing craft, each spoke building another hub, calling down more ships from the sky, repeating it over and over, smashing the machines. The Labawians dug deep into their burrows, fearful of what horrors the newcomers would inflict on the small Labawian people. The only step that they could see from driving them scattered primitism was to wipe out the small people from existence. Then it happened. As dozens of Labawians watched from the safety of the water of the swamp of the newcomers, the huge bipeds of metal and fury approached the machines and kept the younglings in cages for experimentation or just plain sport. 
Over the last few turnings, the world of the machines had moved the younglings from cages to inside the buildings. The watching Labawians knew that the younglings would be slaughtered, caught between the murderous machines and the furious newcomers. They waited for the pounding of artillery and aircraft that always preceded biped ground assault, flicking their tongues nervously while they waited for the massive tanks to pour cannon fire into the base as they did to break up the bipeds. None of that happened. Instead, the bipedal machines, accompanied at times by four-legged ones, slowly moved forward, from cover to cover, firing only at the guns that revealed themselves in the machine's base. They seemed almost non-committal, firing and advancing, firing and retreating, shifting the lines. To the hidden Labawians, this made no sense. Labawians felt the stirring of the current and froze. The currents did not feel like the one the big machines patrolling the rivers and streams of the Delta, but more like Labawians moving through water, throwing a large fish as they made a prized catch. Clicks sounded in the water, and the Labawians blinked in nervousness. The clicks sounded like Labawian clicks, but made no sense. It was just a random sounds. Curious, one of the Labawians swam deeper into the silt-filled cloudy water deeper in the river. He held tight to his sphere. He had stolen a handgun under his tongue, ready to swallow it if need be. His echolocation told him that there were dozens of his kind swimming through the cloudy, opaque water, pulling huge fish behind them. The fish blood made it impossible to tell what tribe the newcomers were from, clogging up the taste tubes, so the Libyan swam deeper, lighting up the ends of his whiskers in the hope of seeing who was moving through, but had not announced themselves. At the bottom of the river, he saw them, his eyes seeing what his senses said were only his kind and some fish. The four-legged robots that their legs folded up and were using water jets to move. They were putting two or three of the big bipedals on fishing line. There were the smaller ones, the size of a child Labawian, were darting around like fish. One moved in front of him, stared with a blank faceplate for long enough and wiggled away. From the four-legged ones poured a smell of freshly caught fish blood. He paddled in place, watching in confusion as the chrome figures moved through the darkness of the salty water. The clicks and pops were between them, not meant for the Labawians, but one another. In a curious swimmer, a part of the cell that had planned on salting the spaceport before the machines had arrived, realized that he was hearing battle code, not much different from the code of Kant of his own cell used. As he watched one of the bipeds turn and blank towards him, one of its forward's hands opened up and closed, and then the biped turned his head back towards the four-legged one towing him. Curious, the Labawian, the one ok ok hock followed, adding his own movements to the pack moving through this territory. There was only twelve of them moving correctly in the spindle. Then they made room for Ak to swim with them. Ak realized that they were swimming to the pool of the machine base, the cruel body of water so close to freedom, but so far that the young Labawians were allowed to swim in it, but were kept from escaping into the waters of the Delta by flicking green shield. He saw, as he followed, that the shield was still up but did nothing. He swam through, expecting oblivion, but instead he just felt a tingle. And they left it up. Why? Uck expected the bipods to spring from the water and start shooting everything in sight. Instead, small little ones slid out of the water and wormed their way across the floor and the beddies like they were made of liquid. Uck started to reach out the edge of the lip and then one of the bipeds grabbed his wrist when he looked at the rune for weight, flashing across the faceplate of the biped and the darkest color the Uck could see. 
The biped slipped out of the water, climbing out of the water, running off of them. To Ock, they looked like primordial nightmares, all black, bulky, dripping water, covered in delta reeds and muck. Ock stayed in the pool, watching. The four-legged ones started returning, moving carefully, sliding into the water without a ripple. The smaller ones came out, needing two or three podlings each. The podlings giggled to themselves this new game. Uck stared as they kept going by. It has to be a terrible trick. It couldn't last. The unearthly silence, where even simple water droplets were like thunder. There is only... The familiar scream started. Uck closed his ears, but still felt the bellowed replies. Get fecked, Skynet. Shattered the screeching onslaught, roaring from a dozen throats. The night caught fire, stealth abandoned for speed. The four-legged ones and the smallest ones urged the podlings into the pond, even as Uck heard a weapon fire start. One of the smaller ones came in, moving fast, making a curious noise that sounded like mew, 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 as the podlings imitated it and chased. The machine burst in, smoking tattered, its armor blown away or twisted and created, and leveled what Uck long ago learned was a plasma gun at running podlings. Flares shot out of little metal ones' backs, and the podlings laughed with glee at the metallic dust puffed from the little robot to fill the room. Uck spit his pistol out into his hand and pulled the trigger wildly. He had never fired the plasma pistol before, and he didn't expect to kick back against his hand. He hit the machine twice, rocking it back. The return plasma shot missing the little ones and hitting the wall. Croaking in anxiety and despair, Uck reoriented the pistol on the machine, which was turning towards him. Help, kitty kitty, Simba, help! Water exploded behind him and one of the four-legged ones burst from the surface of the pond, flying through the air. A massive cannon with the shells as thick as Uck's forehead attached to a belt connecting to the cannon of the four-legged robot. Lasers flashed out, slicing away the plasma run from the machine, cutting furrows in the machine's armor, cutting free two legs. Then the four-legged robot crashed to the floor and the podlings croaked and clicked in fear. It made a roaring noise, a primal sound that made Uck shudder, pause, and the cannon on its back opened up. Brrrrt. The Uck, it sounded like the world ending. The shells chewed the machine apart, but the four-legged robot didn't stop there. It raked the walls, peeling apart the metal walls, the shells not stopping and slamming into the targets beyond. One of the podlings jumped in fear, and Uck felt his stomach clench as he knew the beam of light traversing the room would catch the podling. Instead, there was a minute gap, too small to be purposeful but too perfectly positioned to be accidental, and the podling landed safely. The little one clicked and croaked, and Uck understood it. Follow Mew Mew, follow Kitty Kitty, little littles. Another machine entered the Uck and fired a plasma pistol again. All three shots missed, and more entered the swarming in through the doorway, crashing through the metal, dropping from the vents. Uck fired again at the pistol's plasma cartridge magazine, ran dry for the fourth trigger pull. The four-legged one scrambled to Uck, stepping over him, crouching down over the smaller Bowian, and that cannon kept firing, flashing lasers and screaming plasma getting added to the mix. Machines shattered, spun, and collapsed. Uck saw smaller laser beams flicker out, intersecting pieces of metal shed from the exploding machines, zapping them from existence before the tiny metal pieces could hit the podlings. It seemed to go on forever. The scream of weaponry, the sound of metal ripping asunder, and the clicking 
Following Mew Mew Little Littles, females began streaming by, some heavy with legs, others with the deflated look of ones that had recently had their eggs. Males streamed by, many injured with cruel implements thrust into their bodies. They all jumped into the pool as Uck huddled beneath the big four-legged one. Finally, it was over. Silence descended for a moment, broken only by the patter of potlings when rescued brood mothers streaming by. Still Uck huddled under the four-legged one. One of the big bipeds came into the room. One arm was blown off, its black surface was marred, and it leaked fluid down its flank from a hole that Yuck had see circuitry and mechanized parts through. It saw Uck, and the four-legged robot moved aside. Uck froze. Sure, this time had come. More returned, and one arm moved to Uck and huddled down. The visor went clear, and Uck realized that he was looking at a hairless primate, like one of the lemurs of the southern jungle stripped with hair and made large. Is this your planet? It asked in a unified galactic common. Uck croaked his ascent. The figure pointed to the robot that still twitched and the bipedals kicked it over. Uck noticed that the weapons on the four-legged one tracked it. The biped stopped her with one big foot, pressing it to the floor as the machine's mechanical strength didn't matter. John Connor time, Froggy, the primate said. He squatted behind Uck, reaching around him and carefully, and replaced the plasma pistol with another pistol. Uck shivered, terrified, as the primate embraced him, holding onto his hand and forcing the figure on the trigger. He was about to be devoured. He was sure of it. You're this close to going out, Froggy, the biped said softly from behind him, moving Uck's hand to the aim to pistol at the armored flank of the machine. He forced Uck to press the firing stud on the weapon, cracked, spitting a slug that corrected the armor but didn't penetrate. Uck clicked in resignation. Of course it wouldn't penetrate. You'll learn to fight back, the primate said. He forced Uck to fire again, although Uck didn't understand why, as the slug only hit the crater, widening it and deepening it. To charge the wire, the primate forced him to pull the trigger a third time, expanding the crater. Uck felt dull despair. The pistol stung in his hand, and even though the primate's help, what hope did? And smash! The next shot exposed the innards of the Uck felt a sudden surge of shock. These metal! The little next shot slammed through the crater, unturned wiring and mechanical parts into slag. The machine streaked in pain. Uck felt a sudden flare of anger. Mother! The next shot slammed deeper into the machine's legs and blew off, and Uck felt anger bulled. Why weren't his people armed like this? Freckers! The next caused a thin plume of plasma to vent out of the raptured side. Uck clicked rapidly in anger. Into! The next caused the head of the machine to blow off into a shower of sparks and the entire side split open. Uck gave a loud croak in anger and tried to hop forward. The primate let go. Junk, it said as Uck rushed forward, emptying the magazine of the pistol into the machine as he croaked and clicked in rage. Confed Nevent Report Lentinel 515 called Libao by native species, being cleared, casualties below estimation, orbitals under Confed control, system 90% pacified, native species capable of self-defense, are arming and equipping to act as a resistance force to assist native species as spacefaring before unified civilization interference. Nothing follows. Unified Manufacturing Council Internal Memo 
The Terrans spent significant military resources to free labor world under the control of Aquinas Pakuru manufacturing by ground forces means, but classed the entire planet of Kukuruluku, a major industrial manufacturing center only a few light years away just because they couldn't detect any life forms on the planet. Lukuluku's industrial and manufacturing capability could have provided assistance to the war effort if it had been liberated rather than underwent orbital bombardment. Had the vaunted Terran Confederacy Navy properly allocated their forces instead of rushing to engage in ground combat on a remote planet of no strategic value, the industrial center might have saved by some same forces. Nukluk Entertainment Conglomerate has filed the most strenuous objection to one of its valuable industrial centers being so casually wiped away just because these, uh, Terrans can't properly allocate military resources. Please discover who to contact at the Confederacy government in order to allow Nukluk Entertainment Conglomerate to bring forth the lawsuit of grievous misapplication of military resources. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.